This is Jocko Podcast number 204. With Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. By virtue of the authority vested in me as President of the United States and as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, I have today awarded the Presidential Unit Citation for Extraordinary Heroism to the Studies and Observations Group Military Assistance Command. The Studies and Observation Group is cited for extraordinary heroism, great combat achievement, and unwavering fidelity while executing unheralded top-secret missions deep behind enemy lines across Southeast Asia. Incorporating volunteers from all branches of the armed forces, and especially U.S. Army Special Forces, SOG's ground, air, and sea units fought efficiently denied actions, which contributed immeasurably to the American war effort in Vietnam. MACV SOG reconnaissance teams, composed of Special Forces soldiers and indigenous personnel, penetrated the enemy's most dangerous redoubts in the jungled Laotian wilderness and the sanctuaries of eastern Cambodia. Pursued by human trackers and even bloodhounds, these small teams outmaneuvered, outfought, and outran their numerically superior foe to uncover key enemy facilities, rescue down pilots, plant wire traps, mines, and electronic sensors, capture valuable enemy prisoners, ambush convoys, discover and assess targets for B-52 strikes, and inflict casualties, all out of proportion to their own losses. When enemy countermeasures became dangerously effective, SOG operators innovated their own counters. From high-altitude parachuting and unusual explosive devices to tactics as old as the French and Indian War. Fighting alongside their Montagnard, Chinese Nung, Cambodian, and Vietnamese allies, special forces-led hatchet forces companies, and platoons staged daring raids against key enemy facilities in Laos and Cambodia, overran major munitions and supply stockpiles, and blocked enemy highways to choke off the flow of supplies to South Vietnam. SOG's cross-border operations proved an effective economy of force, compelling the, the, Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese Army to divert 50,000 soldiers to rear airy security details. far from the battlefields of South Vietnam. Supporting these hazardous missions were SOG's own U.S. and South Vietnamese Air Force (laughs) transport and helicopter squadrons, along with U.S. Air Force forward air controllers and helicopter units of the U.S. Army and U.S. Marine Corps. These courageous aviators often flew through heavy fire to extract SOG operators from seemingly hopeless situations, saving lives by selflessly risking their own. SOG's Vietnamese Naval Surface Forces, instructed and advised by U.S. Navy SEALs, boldly raided North Vietnam's coast and won surface victories against the North Vietnamese Navy while indigenous agent teams penetrated the very heartland of North Vietnam. Despite casualties that sometimes became universal, SOG's operators never wavered, but fought throughout the war with the same flair, fidelity, and intrepidity that distinguished SOG from its beginning.
the studies and observation groups, combat prowess, martial skills, and unacknowledged sacrifices saved many American lives and provide a paragon for America's future special operations forces. Signed, the President of the United States, George Walker Bush. And that is the presidential unit citation presented for those that served in MACV SOG, the Studies and Observation Group in Vietnam. And for those of you that don't know what the presidential unit citation is, it's an award that is given to whole units who, and this is, this is the way they describe it, I quote, display gallantry, determination, and esprit de corps that sets them apart from other units. And you have heard about SOG on this podcast before. First from John Stryker Meyer, otherwise known as Tilt. And he was on podcast 180, 181, and 182. And then from his comrade in arms, the late great hero, Doug the Frenchman Letourneau. And it is an honor for us tonight to have another SOG warrior here. Henry Dick Thompson, codenamed Dynamite, and later known as the Terminator who served as a SOG 1-1 and as a 1-0, and then continued on with 21 years in the Army, eventually retiring and having a whole nother career as a leadership consultant, author, and speaker. Mr. Thompson. And I know I should probably say Dr. Thompson, because I know you got your PhD as well. If that, in, in case everything else was enough, sir, welcome to the program. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. So let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Uh, South Carolina, a little town called Walhalla, uh, not far from Clemson University. So. And and what, what years, what, what year were you born? Uh, 1947. 1947. So you kind of grew up in the 50s. Yeah, pretty much. And and then were you were you in a military family or anything like that? Uh, my father, uh, yeah, my father was uh, World War II in Korea. Uh, my mother had five brothers, all World War II. One was uh, killed. So I was around it, you know, right from the start because yeah, our family was together a lot, so we had a lot of discussion, you know, about the war and things that were going on, and I was always asking questions and how do you do this and how do you do that and how do you organize, so I was interested you know right from the beginning and your, your dad was in world war ii and korea what was his job in the military what branch was he in he, infantry so and he did work uh, with the rangers for a while in world war ii so. and so would you hear him would he debrief you on the types of operations that he did in uh, world war ii in korea some of it um, he didn't talk a whole lot about exactly what he did but he would talk in general about what was going on uh, about the kinds of operations and things. So, what theater did he fight in? Uh, he was in in uh, Germany most of the time in that area. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how long was he in the army for? 
Uh, Army was about four years, and then he got out. And then when Korea came along, then uh, they called him back in. And that's really where I started to hear about it because I was old enough by then to um, hear people talk about Korea and about the war. And um, I would, you know, he would write letters home Mm -hmm. and talk about how deep the mud was or how cold it was and things like that. So uh, I was hearing about the war, you know, firsthand then. Mm -hmm. So. And were you thinking, I'm going in the military? I was probably four or five when I started thinking about that. <laughs> and um, interestingly enough, I I did found, uh, find my old logbook because I also got interested in the, in the rangers. I wanted to be a ranger when I went in. Mm-hmm. So I found a logbook that I created when, you know, I was about nine or so when I created it. Uh, I had all the members of our ranger company listed, which was primarily my cousins. But, um, you know, we had some other people we had recruited in. And um, we had the uh, journal of things that we did, uh, people who got promoted, uh, people who I court-martialed. Uh, <laughs> so are, were you guys doing night raids and stuff? Uh, we spent a lot of time in the woods. I grew up in the woods. Um, you know, when I was five years old, when I get a chance, I'd go off in the woods by myself. I'd go play. I'd track animals. I'd listen to the sounds. I'd learn how to move. By the time I was six, I had an army pup tent, and I would take up on top of the hill in the woods, put it up, sleep up there by myself that night, take some eggs and stuff with me. I'd build a little fire, you know, cook. Uh, as I got a little older, and had my BB gun. Uh, take out some birds, roast them over the fire. So doing things like that that I thought rangers did. So <laughs> you were the, uh, the six-year-old ranger, yeah. company commander, getting after uh, it. Well, the logbook said General Thompson. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works. And then uh, what about high school? Did you play sports? Um, football and track. How? What was your athletic capability? Um. I was better than average on on the team. I wasn't, you know, um, college material, but you know, because I was relatively small, mm-hmm. but uh, I could hit really hard. Uh, even my senior year, they even moved me from uh, running back to defensive end, which I was on a line that weighed over two hundred pounds, and I was one hundred <laughs> and forty. You didn't want to come around my end. Um, you know, my other skill was, you know, I was very fast, so. When the quarterback had dropped back, he'd see me in his face because I could get there really quickly. <laughs> and then, uh, so you, when you graduated high school, did you did you know you were going to college, or what was your plan? Yes. Yeah, I started college, and um, after about a year and a half, you know, Vietnam was going hot and heavy. You saw it on the news every night. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? Uh, Sixty-five. Okay, so yeah, I. I from what I can tell, because I wasn't alive then, but from what I can tell, the the Battle of the Idrang Valley was in 1965, and that was kind of where the real hey, we're we're in combat all the time now. It seems to have that seems to be the pivot point that's noticeable when you look at it historically. Well, that was that was when I think we discovered the North Vietnamese had a real army, mm-hmm. and they were very good much better than anybody thought at the time. Uh, 
and over the next few years, I mean, you you could place them probably in the top four in the world in terms of, of armies. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, we were fighting in their backyard. Mm-hmm. They knew the terrain. They knew how to operate there. Um, they didn't stop. They just keep coming. Uh, their biggest disadvantage was they didn't have the technology that we did. They didn't. They didn't have air superiority. And just a lot of things they didn't have that held them back, or it would have been much worse than it was. So it's 1965. Is that's when you said you graduated high school? Right. And when you graduate high school, you go to college. Where'd you go to college? Uh, University of South Carolina. And then you said it was like a year and a half. Did you? What did you end up doing? Well. I made a decision that what I wanted to do was take a break from school because Vietnam was going on. I felt uh, an obligation, you know, to go do something, do my part, and actually was on my way to the Marine recruiter because that's who you saw on TV every night. (laughs) Um, But stopped by the Army recruiter who was next door just to see what they had to offer. Um, So I went with the Army, and you know, I knew that would give me a chance to do the Rangers if I decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, by then, I, I was also a, a chemist. I, about 13, I developed a passion for chemistry. So in addition to all the outdoor stuff, you know, I, was, I set up my own laboratory uh, in the barn at home. <laughs> I spent all my money uh, on chemicals and I know you like this, but back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, you could you could go into a pharmacy and buy all kinds of things. I mean, you could buy you know nitric acid and all. I mean, just unbelievable chemicals you know you could buy, uh, particularly if you got your mother to sign for you and say, yeah, it's okay to let him have that stuff. And I would stock my my lab with it and do all kinds of experiments. Um, I, I was getting close, maybe, to um, a successful brain exchange between um, birds and frogs. Um, I could get it in there. I just couldn't get them, you know, to start breathing again afterwards. So I had a lot of— That lot sounds of, close. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. So were you studying chemistry in college? Yes. Yeah, I went to school on a chemistry scholarship— uh, the intent was to be, uh, you know, get a doctorate in chemistry and be a researcher. But then uh, I decided to take the break, do three years in the Army, and then come back and finish the degree. So it, so is it 1967 now? I went in 67. So it's 1967. How strong was, were the sentiments in America against the war? Very strong. In 67? Very strong. So that was already there? Yeah. What about in South Carolina? Uh, not as much as some of the other parts of the of the country, you know. But it was still there. It wasn't something that everyone thought we should be doing. Mm-hmm. So, and what about your dad, who had seen combat in World War II and in Korea? How did he feel about you um, going he, in? He supported it. Um, my mother didn't. You know, she wanted me to finish school. I said, you know, I'm just taking a three year break. <laughs> I'll come back. Uh, finish the doctorate, and everything will be fine. She said, no, you won't. I said, yes, I will. I'll be back. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, when I got in, they started talking about, man, you got to go to airborne school. You, you need to be airborne. Um, and they said, you need to go to OCS. 
Yeah, you need to be an officer. So at what point, yeah. so you go to boot camp. Right. And is it boot camp where they're like looking at you going, hey, we need airborne soldiers. Yeah. And was that a pretty easy that, pathway to get to? Uh, it, yes. It was, I mean, they, they ask you day one when you go into the induction center, do you want to volunteer to be airborne? Uh, my response was no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm here for. Um, but then once I got into, uh, you know, boot camp, um, I ate that stuff up. Did uh, you still, so when you were, when you, when you went in, what was the predominant part of your brain that was functioning? Was it the, Hey, I'm going to do three years, serve my country and look for a job that'll be similar to being a chemist. Or was the primary part of your brain that was functioning was the, I want to be a ranger and, and go get after it. It was when I first entered first couple of days, it was, you know, three years I'm out go back to school, be a chemist. Um, I guess it was maybe the first morning we were in the barracks and, you know, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, the lights come on. Somebody starts yelling and screaming and hollering to, to get out of, the, out of bed, fall in, you know, get in formation in front of the bunks. And then I hear, you know, we're in, in double bunks. I hear them start crashing onto the floor and I jump out and I look and here's this guy smaller than me and he has a big, you know, smoky the bear hat on a ranger tab. And I said, wow. <laughs> and everybody there jumped when that guy said to do something. And I said, oh, okay, I need to start rethinking here. There's um, got to be something innate in men to to that's just that's just what happens you see that you know, and you go yes i'm in for that <laughs> yeah i mean it, this guy was impressive and it, and you know that brought back all the ranger stuff and it started to override the chemistry you know so then, <laughs> then we get out we we're on the firing range you know i'm i was an expert marksman before I ever you know went in so you know i'd max out the marksmanship um, I was in, you know, good physical condition. So every everything they were doing, I could do, and I, I learned it really fast. Uh, one night, I was on um, uh, CQ duty. I had to work in the orderly room with the person who was there all night, and I saw this book laying on the table. Uh, it was FM twenty two dash one hundred drill and ceremonies, and I picked it up and I started looking at it, and I thought. This tells you everything about, you know, right face, left face, when to call the command, all this. I said, it's all written out right here. I mean, if I'd had this book the last couple of weeks, <laughs> so I read the book that night, you know, I, I read pretty fast. The next day, I could see the mistakes that the drill sergeants were making. And I, don't, I made the mistake one time of pointing it out. Uh, so, you know, I got to work on my triceps and pecs a little bit as I pushed, uh, pushed Fort Gordon a little bit close to the China. But um, I found it. This stuff is all written down. You can give me access to it. I'll learn it. And so I was the, put in charge of my platoon as a platoon guide because, you know, physically, mentally, everything, I was doing great. Um, so... I, I had a good time. And then you volunteered. Was it, did you have a job designated when you went in? Were you were you going to be infantry when you went in? There, I was going to the chemical corps. So, oh, so the chemistry <laughs> brain was legitimately winning oh, when you yeah, went in. It was for a few days. 
And then and then did you change your your specialty oh, to yeah. infantry? Yeah. You walked in and said, "Yeah, hey, I, I know I showed up to be a chemist, but I want to carry a machine gun." Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, how hard was it to do that? Not hard at all, because I I was so fired up. I I love the things that we were doing, and I figured I can do this for three years. I can still go back and do a, be a chemist if I want to. But um, they let you change. They let you. Yeah. They said, "Okay, cool." Hey, if you want to change the infantry during at Vietnam, that time, it was no problem. No problem. Anybody that would volunteer for that, I mean, you got it right away. And then next up, how did you volunteer for Airborne School? Same thing? Um, yeah. I mean, I just I had an opportunity to, to volunteer. Uh, well, after boot camp, you go to, uh, in my case, I went to advanced infantry training. AIT. So, yeah. So, you you know, in there, you're volunteering for different things. So I volunteered, um, you know, for OCS. I volunteered to go to Airborne School. So I went to OCS first. Uh, and they sent you to OCS even though you hadn't completed college? Yes. And they didn't care? Neither at that time. Uh, They're like, hey, you're uh, smart. Lieutenants were getting killed so fast. I mean, they, they couldn't produce lieutenants fast enough. Uh, you know, a lieutenant had a life expectancy of about a day and a half in Vietnam. So, you know, that was easy to get in. And... You know, I did that. I did, you know, really well in OCS. So it was easy when I said, okay, I want to go to uh, airborne school and I want to go to Special Forces. So you made that decision as well. Yeah. Now, what about being going from officers to Special Forces? Was there any challenge in making that happen or was it still just open, wide you know, open? They took me right in. Yeah, you, know, <sighs> you know, I had done well. I. I got uh, accepted to that, you know. So I had to. How you know, old were you at this point? Um, nineteen, twenty. So you're nineteen years old. You have a year and a half of college. You're an officer in the army, going to special forces, airborne, and this is all just tracking you to go to Vietnam. Yeah, I mean you're on that track. But um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you so airborne school. You know, is airborne school. I went to airborne school. I was lucky, lucky enough to have been in the Navy when we still went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and yeah. did airborne school. But what about special forces school? As you were going through that, what was your impression of what was going on? What was the instruction like? How well was that preparing you from your perspective for what you were going to be doing in Vietnam? Um, I think it, it did a. It didn't prepare me for SOG necessarily. It gave me a lot of the basics. Um, Special Forces is not just about going in and conducting a raid or something like that. It's really about going in and working with the people. We did a lot of training on insurgencies, uh, how governments are overthrown, different things like that. So uh, particularly since I was an officer, I was on the officer track. So um, we were doing a, a lot of the bigger picture stuff plus officers get trained in all of the primary skill sets of special forces mm -hmm. whereas if you're enlisted uh, coming coming out of the qualification training you go to be a weapon specialist or to be a medic or whatever mm -hmm. you you go into a specialty area officers have to be trained in all of them so that you understand what the people are talking about if you're going to lead them so um, I enjoyed that did well in it volunteered uh, for ranger school and then you went to ranger school went, after? Went to ranger school after, so uh, a lot of harassment. Uh, my ranger buddy and I, you know, 
we'd been together forever so we go there um and was that bob yeah that was bob and we have to you have to go knock on the door to get in to report into ranger school and you can't knock on the door hard enough so bob and i got back and ran into it and just knocked it off the hinges almost <laughs> and then reported in and uh, you know the instructor that's there he looked at us he looked down at the paper and he told the other guy that was with him he said we've got two snake eaters here we're going to have to keep an eye on them to make sure they don't crap in the street out there or something. <laughs> and, you know, it went downhill from there because then it became, uh, Ranger School kind of became a, a tug of war between SF and, and the Rangers. Mm-hmm. So every time you did something, if they dropped you for push ups or something, you, then you had to do one more for the big Ranger in the sky. <laughs> so Bob and I would do for the big Ranger in the sky. And two for the big SF trooper that looks over the big ranger, you know. <laughs> then they'd put us back down again. So, um, you know, it. we tried to have as much fun in ranger school as we could, you know, because it was tough. And yeah. being able to put a little humor in it as you went along. Um, yeah. Now, was ranger school, in terms of preparation for what you're going to be doing in SOG, a little yes. bit closer? Yes. Because and, now you're doing light infantry. Well, it's... It's really infantry, but it's uh, patrolling operations, um, raid ambushes, uh, all, you know those kinds of things that we're doing in SOG. In fact, you know when I first got to SOG, when I went in with with my group, uh, everybody that I arrived with went to what they call the one zero school, the SOG team leader school. And I'm standing there, and everybody else is walking away. And I said, what about me? And you don't need to go to one zero school. You're a ranger. Mm-hmm. You're going to a team. So tomorrow you'll be on a team. So at what point did you hear about SOG? Uh, you heard rumors, you know, when you're at SF at Fort Bragg. Every once in a while somebody would mention the term SOG, and you'd say, what is that? Mm-hmm. What do they do? Oh, man, it's top secret. You know, nobody can tell you what it is, but they really do some really cool missions i mean that's the elite but but nobody can tell you you know what they really do so so you you how much this all the schooling must have taken what two years for you to get through all the schooling um it's year and a half at this point probably year and a half and when you get done with ranger school do you finally check into a, a, a special forces group no i'd already we were in there was a little interim Got in it. there before Got ranger it. school uh so we were already assigned to an a team to a b team i was already targeted toward africa and actually uh in mission preparation to deploy to africa for a mission that we we're going on there um, but i had volunteered to i had put in the paperwork to go to vietnam so right after ranger school that came through and you went to all these schools with your friend Bob? Yeah. How did you know him? Where did you guys we, meet? We met uh, in advanced infantry training right off the bat. So, I mean, it was it was unreal. We just, every school, we had the same interests. So, I mean, we went to every school together, you know, the whole time. Where was he from? Uh, California. Okay. But you guys just hit it off. Yeah. You guys were both had the same motivation. Had that same mindset. <laughs> we're going to do it. So then um, at what so so you get your orders changed and was that hard to do? Again, I mean, it, hey, if there's if there's a choice 
in the military, if there's a choice between sending someone to Africa or sending them to Vietnam, at that time Vietnam was going to win. It, it always went out. So as long as you wanted to take the hardest jobs and do the toughest things, it was pretty easy to oh, get yeah. that path opened yeah. up for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> the Army will accommodate you. Yeah. So, all right, let's, get, let's head over to Vietnam. When you show up there, I remember Tilt saying they kind of showed up in Vietnam and they said, hey, who wants to volunteer now for SOG? Is that what happened to you or did you already volunteer and knew, know where you were going? I knew I was going to Special Forces. I knew I'd get a Special Forces assignment. Um, and then when when we got there, there was a, a guy who was already there working in a mic force, but he was there in the, uh, in the train. And... So we linked up with him. We went to a bar that night, and, you know, he kind of updated us on things that were going on. And one of the things he said was um, tomorrow, toward the end of the day, one of the last things they're going to do is they're going to ask you if you want to volunteer for SOG. And he said, whatever you do, don't do it. Just tell them no. They'll say thank you. And, you know, you move on to your special forces assignment. So uh, the next day, toward the end of the day, where Bob and I are sitting in the office waiting to go in to see Colonel you know, Jones or whatever, and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll make my decision. You have to make yours. You know, this is not a joint decision on this mm-hmm. thing. You know. So I went in, and he uh, asked me about SOG, told me just a little bit, and then said, you know, if you want to do that, you have to sign a bunch of papers here. Uh, you volunteer in for six months, basically go anywhere, do anything. And you said, you've got to understand I'm saying anything. So, okay. And then, you know, you have to sign this other thing. You can't tell anybody for 20 years, you know, what you do, stuff like that. So I volunteered. He sent me out the back door and brought Bob in the other door. I went back over. Uh, to the little bar to meet up with our friend. And when I came walking in, he said, you did it. <laughs> I can see it on your face. He said, you are a dead man walking. I told you not to do that. And, you know, when Bob showed up, it was the same way. You could see. I knew he was going to do it. But, yeah. So now you two. So so that, that was the attitude was the casualty rate was so high in SOG that, when someone volunteered for oh, it, it was like they yeah. were a dead man walking. Yeah. I mean, the, the chances of survival, if you ended up on a team, right? if you went to, you know, a staff position, it's a little different, but if you were on a team, uh, you knew a minimum you're going to get wounded. Did you, and did you, you knew that? Obviously, somebody, is this what the guy that was telling you don't don't go to SOG? He said, don't go to SOG because you're going to get wounded or you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. That's guaranteed. And, and most likely you're going to get killed. He said the highest casualty rate in Vietnam is there. Those guys don't survive. I'm not sure exactly what they do, but they don't survive. So. You got something, you got one note in the note you gave me. It, says, it just says blackbirds. So uh, we had to fly from Nha Trang up to Da Nang uh, the next day because if you're going to Sog, you had to, you had to go to Da Nang. Um, so when we go to the airfield, they take us to a restricted area of the airfield. Um, and the, the C-130s and 123s that 
came into that part of the airfield were black. Hmm. And he said, wow, that's, <laughs> that's a little different than everything else. And um, you get on, on the aircraft, you know, there are no seats. There are seat belts on the floor. So the plane is gutted except for the front end, and there's a line up there that says, do not go beyond this line, classified area. So something was happening in the front of those planes that we were not allowed to, to go see. So we sat on the floor, and you know we fly up there, and we get off. Escort picks us up, and he says, um, there'll be a bus here to pick you up in a few minutes to take you over to CCN. And so this school bus-like thing shows up that's black. The windows are shot out. There must have been 200 bullet holes in the bus. And, you know, we're looking at the bus thinking, oh, geez, what have we gotten into? Um, the guy driving the bus, he said, we'll leave in a few minutes. Um, we're picking up a team here today, too. And I, I what happened to the bus? He said, well, there's a pass that we have to go through. Um, and we get ambushed there sometimes. So... Um, the main thing for you, you two to remember is if, you know, the stuff starts, you get on the floor of the bus and do whatever the team tells you. They'll take care of everything. You just do what they tell you if you want to live. And we think, man, this is not looking good. <laughs> we might not even get there. So, but we did, and we got there. So. What was the team? Did you guys pick up a team? Uh, no. When we first got there, um, you know, it was late afternoon, so uh, they assigned us to um, a bunk and told us that we would get briefed the next morning on what we were going to do and told us just, you know, get something to eat in a mess hall, relax. There'd be a movie showing that night, and we're thinking, a movie? <laughs> so they had constructed some kind of like bleachers at this little open area, nailed up a few sheets of plywood, <laughs> and had a, a movie projector and they would get movies from somewhere and they would show a movie out there um, so we went let's go watch the movie and <laughs> behind that screen was marble mountain which juts up out of the sand 450 feet just out of nowhere this thing is jutting up there and there's two peaks each peak up there has um a combat outpost on it because if the bad guys, you know, got up there, they could shoot right down into the compound. So we're watching the movie, and all of a sudden, red and green tracers are going everywhere. I mean, it's just crisscrossing. Bob and I are starting to hit the ground, and everybody else is watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked one guy, what's going on? And he said, don't worry about it. That happens every night. And he said, every night, they've got to get the guys off the combat outpost, and, you know, they put on a little light show up there. It'll be fine. They, won't, they don't shoot down here because they're getting shot at, and they shoot back at those people. Uh, wow. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so then what happens? You, uh, when everyone else got sent to 1-0 school, did Bob get sent to 1-0 school, or is he the same as you? Well, before, before that, the next morning we got our briefing. Uh, we went into the, to the headquarters, into the briefing room, and, you know, the colonel came in and said, okay, let me, uh, let me tell you what SOG's about. Let me tell you what you're gonna be doing. And he uncovered some maps on the wall and started talking about uh, the kinds of missions that we would be going on and that you know, we would be put on teams 
and we'd be leading those missions and he kind of explained that you know we had three major areas you had the northern area um, which was ccn uh, there but the uh, forward operational base was up in fubai and, and so he explained where the the different camps were and then after that he you know he told me i'd be going to alpha b1 up north uh bob would be going down to central down around contum you know so we went our different ways at that point did uh when he started briefing you on what the missions consisted of did you did you have any was your guess anywhere close to that did you did you have any idea and say yeah that's probably what i I thought we would be doing was it close i had heard rumors that maybe they operated outside of the of vietnam um you know, so it didn't surprise me that much when he started talking about the countries we were going to actually go into. Um, the kinds of missions didn't surprise me too much. I mean, a few of them did, but um, for the most part, it was, wow, <laughs> this is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, but it's pretty cool. Did he talk to you at all about casualty rates or anything? No, no. All right, so so then what happens? You get assigned. So yeah, so I went to FOB one at Fubai uh, with a group of other people, and when we got there, um, they grabbed everybody but me and said, you know, you guys are going to one zero school, um, so a week long course to to teach them how to be a leader, small team in the jungle. Um, there were a few things that they probably got that I hadn't done already, um, but but not much. So I was assigned, or told I'd be assigned to the, a team the next morning. Told me to go report over to the um, uh, supply room. They had uh, a mission for me first that I needed to do. So when I got there, they told me that um, we had had some casualties, and that their personal effects had to be inventoried, you know, by an officer before they could be sent home. So. He said, you know, their duffel bags are in there. You know, if you just dump them out, go through them, look for anything uh, that might be classified, a map or anything like that. Um, if there's any correspondence in there, read it. Make sure it doesn't say anything about any of the missions. Uh, if there are pictures, you know, get all the pictures out. Uh, so pretty well, you know, sterilize their, uh, their gear. So the first bag I picked up, when I read the name, I thought, wow, you know, I know him. So this was a guy that, um, you know, we had run around with some at Bragg, so I already knew him. And he came over, you know, about a month before me, and now I'm inventorying his stuff. Mm. So kind of got my attention. So, wow, (laughs) the casualty rate, you know, probably is pretty high here. But then the next day, I was, you know, assigned to a team as the one one, the assistant team leader, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we started mission prep to get ready to go out. And who was the team leader? Uh, Sergeant Deck. So, so it's um, it's very cool that even though you were an officer, you were going to be second in command. No one, no one was going to walk into a team, uh, regardless of your rank, and just you know say I'm here and I'm I'm the team leader. Uh, you had to, regardless of your rank, you had to go out as an assistant or, or, or lower and learn how to lead a team, learn what's going on out there, 
uh, and eventually get checked off by the team leader. He would, you know, like Sergeant Deck had to say, okay, Thompson can lead a team now. Mm-hmm. You know, and that put me, put me on the list to take over the next team, you know, that was available. So what did the team consist of? Uh, myself um, and, you know, Sergeant Deck, myself and another American. And then, you know, we had probably nine uh, indigenous members on the team. And who were the first indige? What kind of indige crew uh, was the first crew? Were they Vietnamese? Viet- they? Uh, Vietnamese. Okay. And then did you did you go through any training protocol to be ready for your first mission or what, what with the you team? Do? I mean, yep. we just we started training right away. Once I was assigned, you know, Deck grabbed me up and started talking to me. This is what you got to do. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's where we're going. What we're going to do. We took the team out. We started doing immediate action drills uh, and in preparation for what we were going to do on the mission. You know. How long did you guys have the train before you guys rolled um, out on your first mission? I it was it was probably eight to ten days before we actually went out. So so I had a little time to mm-hmm. g- get to know the team better, uh, to learn all the the drills and the way they did things. What was the level of English speaking for your indige troops? Uh, very good for the um, interpreter and the others. They understood some words, you know, the common words that you would use: get down, stop, you know, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, that you use all the time, but I mean, you couldn't carry on a conversation. So. And what was your, how good was your level of focus during this time? I imagine you must have been just as focused as a human being could get. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is real. Right, so, totally focused. There was nothing else on my mind. Um, in fact, we had a, we had a, a, a little theater there at Fubai. Um, had a little top on it, so if it rained, we didn't get wet. Put some old benches we were sitting on, a piece of plywood. The movie was on, uh, so I went to a movie. After a couple of days, they had one. I, I went to the movie that evening, and I'm sitting here, and I hear this loud pow, and the guy next to me falls off on the ground. And I'm thinking, yeah, because we're we're sitting outside, mm-hmm. we just have a little top on. And he falls over on the ground, hitting the shoulder. And I, wow. Doesn't matter where you are. That, yeah. that, that puts a downer on uh, movie night. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't that much into movie night. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. so now what's the first mission that you guys get assigned? Uh, they were doing some testing, among other things, in, in addition to just sending us on a mission. They were trying to figure out what was the best time to put a team on the ground. Mm-hmm. Should you put them in right at first light so when you get off the aircraft, you can move out and and head to wherever you're you're going to go. You you're getting away from the LZ quickly, you know, because they the bad guys would figure out that you had been inserted and they'd come out and start looking for you. Or was the best way to do it go in at last light, so it's dark. You get off the LZ, you set up, and you uh, remain overnight position, uh, and then head out at first light. So if, if the NVA or trackers are coming after you, then they were having to do it in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so our team had been selected to to be a last light insertion to see how that worked. Um, so, you know, and I had already been briefed on some things like we go in high, we go in 3,000 feet or so when we're flying to, to the LZ uh, to avoid a small, small orange fire coming up at us. 
Uh, and then when you get out there to the to the LZ, he's going to bank the aircraft on the side, uh, and he's going to put it in auto rotate, and it's just going to fall out of the sky in a spiral until he gets to where he wants to make his short final coming into the LZ, and then he'll put the power back on and slow it down, and we'll come in. I was not quite prepared for that. <laughs> I mean, I, I understood the concept of what he was saying, but I didn't realize that when he put that thing in auto-rotate, I wasn't going to be sitting on anything. And I was on the side that it was turned toward, so I'm just hanging out there in the air, holding onto the side of the aircraft, looking down 3,000 feet and saying, this is not good. <laughs> you know, my stomach's up in my throat, and it's like a thrill ride at the fair or something, and this thing is falling. And I'm, you know, I'm just trying to hang on and stay in there. So we spiral on down. We come around, and we're coming in on a short final. It's on a ridge line, uh, and they had dropped um, – uh, what was called a daisy cutter, 2,000-pound mm-hmm. bomb, um, to blow a hole in the canopy big enough that we could set the helicopter down in. And we're coming in, we're flying over a little pond on the ridge line, and, we're, and I'm you know, climbing out on the skid of the helicopter myself, and um, the other American, the team leaders on the other side. So we're climbing out on the skid, and I'm thinking, man, I mean, we're going really slow, and I'm just a sitting target. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could just knock me off of this thing any time. This is not not good. Um, so we come up, and we had to literally go straight down into the bomb crater. So the pilot's trying not to clip trees as we're setting down. It's just getting dark, um, and, and we're going in and—, and uh, Myself and the other guy are on the skid, and we're close enough, and he slowed down enough. I said, okay, this is it. We're going to have to jump on, you know, down into the bomb crater. I bent my knees to jump, and just as I did, I saw this guy pop up on my right about 10 feet, you know, kind of off to the side with an AK-47. And just instantly, instead of jumping, I push back, jump back up on the edge of the helicopter. Just as I jump up, you know, he opens up with the AK, and the bullets come right across where my legs were, but now I've moved, and they hit, you know, the other American on the other side of me, hit him in the legs. So he starts to fall. So I'm grabbing the back of his harness with my left hand, and I put a half a magazine in the guy you know, that's right there. I hosed him down, and I managed to jerk, you know, the the other guy up onto the floor of the helicopter, and then I could turn and put a, you know, I could just see muzzle flashes right in front of me, so I put the other half of the magazine there. So now I'm empty, you know. And when, when we go in, when you'd go in, you would have gunships who would come in alongside you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in case something happened. So we're in a full-fledged ambush now all the way around us. Two Cobra gunships open up with their miniguns, 4,000 rounds a minute coming in, <laughs> looking like two hose pipes just spraying red water all around us. And what you know, a lot of people don't realize is 
bullets don't just hit the ground and go on the ground. They ricochet. They bounce all over the place. And if there are trees there, they're hitting trees. They're going around. So I'm trying to pull him. I'm trying to pull him back up inside the helicopter. I've got the door gunner on my side, full blast. The the Cobras coming in, and they're also shooting uh, 40 millimeter grenades at 250 a minute. So we've got that going on. I got two team members behind me using me for cover. <laughs> so I've got a muzzle on each side of my head right here, and I'm getting powder burns, you know, from the muzzle flashes coming out of that. Um, I got hot brass coming from them, coming from the door gunner, going all over me. The floor is now covered with blood, blood squirting out of his legs, and and I'm my magazine's empty. So I'm trying to get the magazine out of my my pouch that I've got it in. And you know, it, one of the things I talk about in you know the, the stress book is that when your stress level gets really high. Um, you lose your fine motor coordination. Things that you can do very easily when you're not stressed just don't work for you anymore. So I'm trying, I'm having trouble getting the magazine out of the pouch to start with. I finally get it out, and then I can't get it in the weapon. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm just seeing hundreds and hundreds of bullets and tracers coming, green tracers crisscrossing inside the aircraft. Uh, and so you hear green these. tracers crisscrossing inside the yeah, aircraft. They're Let me home. just explain to everybody that doesn't know what that means. That's insane. That means that enemy bullets in, in Vietnam, the, the Americans used red tracers and the enemy used green tracers. And unfortunately, it's not really like that anymore. Everybody uses red tracers. And, and I, that was what it was like for us in, in Iraq in the night. Some guys hit me up and said it's the same thing in Afghanistan. Very rarely would they see green tracers. But for enemy tracers to be crisscrossing inside of your helicopter, and this was a Huey, right? Yeah. This is not a small, <laughs> this is this is not a big uh, uh, aircraft. This is a tiny aircraft. Yeah. I mean, You're we, packed in there. So for rounds to be crisscrossing inside that thing, green tracers, that is completely insane. I was thinking that myself. You know, this, this little voice in the back of my head is saying, yeah, you know, this is crazy. Um, not only that, but I am not happy. I mean, this is my first mission, and I'm going to die on my first – I mean, you know, what kind of deal is this? I came over here to do something. So that little voice is going on back there, and the other one's yeah, saying – Yeah, this is, this is like 15 seconds into your first mission. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's right there. Ricochets are going all over the place from, you know, from the – the cobras and things and you know uh the other guy's rolling around screaming holding his leg and, and you know the blood squirting around uh and you're also hearing this metallic clang just clang clang with the bullets hitting the helicopter and you know you you're thinking too if this thing's going to go down we're going to end up in this bomb crater right there um so all of that's going on i finally managed to get the other magazine you know in so then i can start to shoot at uh, you know the muscle flashes that i'm seeing and you know the second time i go to reload i was a little better uh with that one got it in there a little faster the aircraft's starting to really vibrate now because he's trying to lift up you know out of that little hole in the canopy so i'm thinking at least we're trying to start up but this stuff is still coming it's still hitting us and you've got the you know, Cobra's making more raids, and now what's also happening, I can't really see it, but the A-1 Sky Raiders that are out there on station with us, they give us some protection. They're starting to drop 
500-pound bombs just a little ways from us because those little thatched roof huts that I saw out there as we were spiraling in turned out to have tanks underneath them. So they had just put that thatched stuff around and make them look like a, you know, a, a, a little hoots, but really there was tanks. So when the tanks started moving, you know, the Sky Raiders went after them, and then, you know, so you got all the bombing and strafing of, of those guys going on. Uh, you got the gunships hitting all, you know, shooting all around us. We're trying to come out, and eventually we managed to get up out of that hole. The fire just shifted, now the tracers are going up. But as we pulled away from it, then, you know, that fire stopped because now the cover was really opened up, you know, on the ambush site. And I, I look across at Sergeant Deck sitting over on the other side, and he looks at me with a big grin on his face and giving me a <laughs> thumbs up, and I'm thinking, oh, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> so, I mean, he was so excited. I mean, he thought that was the coolest thing, and I'm thinking, man, I almost died. This was my my first time uh i experienced a, a level of fear that i didn't know existed i mean i had tried to imagine a lot about you know what's it like you know when people start shooting at you you know of course you're going to be a little anxious so what is it going to be i had no clue <laughs> i couldn't even imagine a level of fear like that but you know fortunately uh I was able to control that part of the field. I could still shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't stop me from returning fire and doing what I needed to do, but, man, it scared me. Uh, having those two weapons right next to my head, I mean, my high frequency hearing was steadily going away permanently, mm -hmm. um, getting burned, you know, with, with the muzzle flashes coming out of there. Um, killed my first two people for sure the the guy down below and the first guy i shot at in the, in the tree because i saw him come out i know i took those two out and i hit several others uh saved the first american's life because if he had fallen in the crater he'd have been gone a second later we'd have both jumped in that crater and we'd have both been gone that's bad tactics on their part right they yeah. should have held for another two seconds they, they, they should have had you jump. on the ground and yeah. they would have been still been able to possibly damage the yeah. helicopter and yeah yeah so, you know, I earned my combat infantryman's badge. And yeah, you did. Just <laughs> <laughs> I had a, had a whole series of, of firsts that occurred right there um, and, you know, survived that. And, you know, a couple minutes later, I'm thinking, man, we got out of that. And I looked down, and here comes a stream of tracers coming up out of a, a 51 caliber or something. Mm -hmm. They were trying to hit the helicopter. They were, you know, away from us. But... Uh, still, I think it's not over yet. I mean, we got to get out of here and get back. And I told um, I told the door gunner, I said, you know, we got to go straight to the hospital. You know, we got to drop this guy off. Uh, he's got to have medical attention right away. You know, so we did that. We dropped him off. Then we went back to the launch site uh, to drop the team off. But um, and I I asked Sergeant Deck. I said, um, I'm just curious, how many magazines did you fire when we were back there and he said um i emptied five i had I had the six put in mm -hmm. i was getting ready to start on that i threw two fragmentation grenades and a smoke grenade and and then he said lieutenant 
you need to practice so you get faster reloading when people are shooting at you or you're going to die. I said, okay, I'll, I'll practice. Yeah, because so. when you talk about the fine motor skills disappearing, but if you practice them all the time, you'll be able to maintain them. Like, to, to some degree. Yeah, to some, know. they won't be as good, but they'll be yeah. better. Yeah. Because it's, you know, and, and that's part of the problem with training. Uh, you you train you train to get a good sight picture, sight alignment, and all that, and you squeeze the, the trigger and uh, hit your, your target that's not shooting back at you. And then, you know, you get in a firefight like that, and your stress level skyrockets, and when it does, you can't see the sights on the weapon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you train to use those sights, and now all of a sudden, you, your vision changes as the stress goes up. You can't focus on the sights. So you can't, you can't do it the way you trained. Uh, you can't reload the way you trained. You train to turn sideways and shoot, and all of a sudden, when all the stuff is coming at you, your body... Your brain takes over and says, face the enemy. And it's got, your body's going to turn you toward the enemy. So you got to train to shoot at the enemy. you got to train to shoot uh, without aiming, so to speak. Now, I had been through um, a pretty extensive course on something that we call quick kill, mm-hmm. where we train to shoot from the hip. And we started with BB guns and shot at little miniature silhouettes on a two-by-four, mm-hmm. shooting from the hip with a BB gun until you could knock them all down. And then we started throwing a disc up in, you know, three-inch disc up in the air, and you shoot with a BB gun until you could hit that moving disc. And then the disc would get smaller and smaller, and then we would go onto a course where the targets popped up and it was live fire in terms of, you know, you were using your weapon uh, and shoot from the hip and, you know, get so you could hit all the targets. So we practiced... Uh, a lot and, and with the teams that I had I just drilled it in their head you've got to be able to shoot without aiming mm-hmm. you, you don't have time to bring up and try to look through a sight it's happening too fast you'll be dead before you can get it up there um, so there are a lot of techniques that I had brought in uh, that I had learned before I got here and then you know kind of developed across time and always trained the teams do this do it like this it's quick uh, one of the NCOs had told me um, one night at Fubai, he said, you can't hesitate. There's no hesitation. you got to understand, Lieutenant, where you're going, everybody is the enemy. You don't have to worry about shooting a friendly mm-hmm. by mistake. They're all enemy. And the person that shoots first has the highest probability of surviving. Pull the trigger mm-hmm. and never, ever shoot anybody less than three or four times. And if he still moves, you shoot him three or four more times. There's no one shot and move to the next guy. Mm-hmm. You make sure they go down. You know, so that was kind of the strategy I adopted and, and practiced to be able to do that. And I can, I can go from the safety position on the selector switch to fully automatic faster than most people can pull the trigger with with the safety already off i used to practice that i used to practice it going down i also discovered that with an ak-47 as soon as they start to shoot at you the barrel rises Mm -hmm. if they don't hit you with that first or second round if you can get down you got a chance to survive Mm -hmm. and i used to practice shooting on the way down Mm -hmm. uh, put silhouettes out hit them all before i hit the ground as i'm going down i'd empty that magazine 
So anyway, that's kind of getting off track here. No, that's that's actually right on track. <laughs> the so so you come back from this first mission. <laughs> what was your what What are you thinking now? You got to be thinking to yourself. There's no possible way I'm living through this. Well, actually, the way my mind works, I was critiquing. What should we have done? What should we have trained on beforehand? Mm-hmm. What did we do there? Were we prepared for an ambush like that? Uh, was there anything else we, we could have done? So I was playing you know, through our preparation, playing my, in my mind through what we actually did. Uh, what could we do differently next mm-hmm. time? So uh, in my mind, you gotta get better every time. Mm-hmm. Every time you do something, you need to be better than the last time that you did it. You need to understand it's gonna, it, you're gonna always have to adapt. Whatever you plan, you're gonna have to adapt. Uh, you know, war is just, it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the pre- predictability is that it's gonna change. Yeah. You know, and you've gotta be able to do that and do it on the fly. Yeah, the, I, I had, I was telling you, I had just had a guy on the podcast, hasn't come out yet, but I had a guy that was, he went into, he was a Marine, he went into Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan, and Tinian. Got wounded in, in Tarawa, got shot, while he was still 500 meters from the beach trying to get across that that hell that they were walking through but you know we had that discussion around you know always thinking it's like nothing will happen to me and i I always use the example of like i always think if if i'm on a commercial airplane and it crashes i'm gonna live like i'm gonna figure out a way and i'll i'll get into a good free fall position and i'll look scan and find a pool somewhere or whatever was there, a, was there any of that? Because it seems to me like that kind of operation right there, you gotta look at that and say, even if, even if you have the attitude of it'll happen to someone else, when you've got Green Tracer coming through your aircraft, that might change even my mind and start thinking, okay, probably not gonna, probably not gonna make it through this. Yeah, you think that, and I've had, I've used up more lives than a, than a cat <laughs> just during that time period. <laughs> You um, used up nine lives I, that night. <laughs> I, I never thought that in, I would. In those two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I never thought I'd see my you know, 21st or 22nd birthday. Thought that no way. You, you just can't get there from okay. here. Okay, so, with so what there I'm you doing. go. You, you got to a point where you said, okay, I'm probably not going to make it. Yeah, there's and a good that's chance. that's the way it is. But my attitude is I'm going to take as many of you with me as I can. You might get me, but you're going to pay for it. I'll be really upset if you knock me off with the first round and I don't get a chance to get some of you. But you better you better do it quick because I want to take as many as I can with me because I'm I'm coming. Mm-hmm. So okay, so you guys get back from the from that mission. You guys do a good debrief. You're going through all the points of what you thought you could do better. You're wondering who is who is the person <laughs> that came up with the idea of doing these night mm-hmm. inserts and maybe if last light inserts aren't mm-hmm. the best. I don't know, because that's another thing. You don't really know. Yeah, I mean, you don't. And it seems to me like if you drop a daisy cutter and the enemy at least goes, says to themselves, well, they dropped the daisy cutter. They must have done that for a reason. Yeah. Let's go surround it. I mean, why would you drop a 2,000-pound, one 2,000-pound bomb out here on a ridgeline yeah. and not do anything else unless you're coming? Yeah. Unless you're going to come at in At least there. drop 15 of them yeah. to, give, to make the enemy have to spread out a little bit. Not put yeah. their entire forest surrounded this the one crater. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, there were a lot of things like that. I thought about you know once I got back, I you know I was making a list. Um, unfortunately, 
Uh, I shared some of my lists with the commander of, of the camp because uh-huh. he was excited and telling me, uh, I told you we could get you out. You know, if we put you out there, we're going to get you out. You saw how it worked, right? And I said, I saw how it worked. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me share some thoughts with you. Uh, unfortunately, um, I probably had um, talked to Mr. Jack Daniels two months before I had that conversation, <laughs> and I shared a little too much of my thoughts. Um, to, he wasn't exactly, you know, happy with some of the things I had to say because it reflected on him too. But uh-huh. I, I still think they're right, you know. Yeah. You put one, like you said, you put one day's gutter out there, you know. Why don't we put up a flag for everybody to say, hey, they're coming here soon, you know. Uh, all right, sir, then what's the next mission looking like? Uh, let's see. Then I think the next one, the next one we actually got to spend the night. So we did a lot a lot of planning, uh, and at this point, you know, Sergeant Deck's starting to listen. You know, I've got more credibility mm-hmm. now. I've been shot at, and, you know, we did okay. Um, so we, we put a lot more planning into it, a lot more re- rehearsal into it, <clears throat> and went in, got on the ground, uneventful. Uh, and, and when you would get on the ground, uh, you would – you would move 100 meters or so into the jungle. You would stop, set up a security perimeter, and then you adapt. Mm-hmm. You listen. Do you hear any bad guys? What do you hear? You got to adapt to the sounds of the jungle for, because the last 45 minutes, an hour, all you've heard is this whop, whop, whop of the helicopter, and you know. So you've had a temporary threshold shift in your hearing. You can't hear as good. You can't smell as good because you've been smelling the JP-4 and the helicopter all the way out there. So you you have that security halt, and you adapt to the sounds. What's out there? What do you hear? What do you see? Um, in my case, I was very fortunate that uh, I had spider senses, so to speak. You know, I didn't quite have spider hearing after that first little episode. <laughs> Uh, but I still, I still have the rest of it. I mean, I, I could smell you. In more than one case, I sniffed out an ambush. I could smell them. I could smell their body odor. I could smell what they had had to eat. I knew they were up in, in front of us. Uh, I, yeah, I could just feel things like that. So uh, we had that. We sent in Team OK. We had a code word that we just transmit that meant you know, one of them meant Team OK moving north, moving whatever direction. Was this a daytime, <clears throat> um, early mo- first light insertion, or was, it was this last uh, night? Late afternoon, okay. but, yeah, we, it wasn't the last light thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, so we had time to, to move for a ways and then, uh, you know, eventually stop, you know, for the night. Uh, and t- typically what we would do is um, do, like, we call it a fish hook. Mm-hmm. You'd move along a little ways, and then you would make a turn, and you would come back down 50 meters or so. Mm-hmm. So if someone was tracking you, you'd hear them go by because they're following your trail. Um, and I would put, very quickly I learned to put out um, what we call toe poppers. It was a little small anti-personnel mine, uh, plastic, and you know, it had C4 in it. It would take your leg off or most of your leg if you stepped on it. Mm-hmm. And 
I had a lot of experience in the wood, woods. I know how people are going to track you. I know where they're going to walk. I know where they're going to step. Um, and particularly if there's a log for someone to have to go across, they'll always step right on the other side mm-hmm. of it. And that's where I'd put it. You know, I'd put it right where they're going to step, and I'd cover it back up. And sometimes I'd put my foot, just a light footprint on top of it. And then if, if they came, you'd hear that thing go off. Um, and you knew you got one. Mm-hmm. And um, he was probably going to die. He'd bleed to death because they didn't have a hospital or anything out mm-hmm. there. So you had him. And if he was just leading a larger group, uh, typically they would open fire. They didn't know where you were. They'd just start spraying the woods. But, you know, you're way back here. And they're up in front of you now. So that gives you a chance to you know, decide if you're going to move out or not. So anyway, we, we set up. And the jungle... The jungle just swallows you as it starts to get dark. It just closes in all around you. And if you're under, you know, double canopy jungle, it gets dark fast. If you're under triple, it's pretty dark during the daytime. But at night, you can't see anything. It's just totally dark. And I was thinking as it was getting dark, you know, at first I thought, I'm a little nervous because I can't see, even though I had just, you know, I had tremendous night vision, like an owl, but I couldn't see. And then I thought, they can't see either. Mm-hmm. And the difference is between us and them is we're not moving. They have to move without making any noise. And if they make any noise, we know where they are. We know they're out there. So... What I did was I created, <clears throat> for me, uh, a 4D bubble around me. So I would, I would just start with whatever direction I was facing, and then what's out there? What sounds do I hear? What bugs do I hear? What noises do I hear? And I'd take the next quadrant, the next quadrant, until I'd gone all the way around. So I knew the sounds in all four quadrants. And then I would raise it up because up above you, I mean, you got birds, you got monkeys, you got different things that are happening in the trees, different sounds up there, and you you incorporate all this together, and now you're used to a particular level of noise in each one of these quadrants. And then the sound of silence was the trigger. I, I developed, you know, to where I could actually wake up if any quadrant went quiet, it would wake me up. If anybody moves in one of those quadrants, the bugs in that area will stop chirping. Mm-hmm. They'll just get quiet all of a sudden. And if they get quiet, something's out there. And that, that alerts you to you know, where they're coming from. And it might be a tiger. You know, it might be you know, some other large animal, but something just stopped them, scared them. Um, so I said, you know, the dark's my friend. They can't see me. And I've got area weapons out there, claymores. I can set off the claymore. They see a big ball of fire, and I take out a, a bunch of people. Uh, but they don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next level of the frag grenades, you throw a grenade, big ball of fire, a lot mm-hmm. of fragments, but they don't know where it came from. So they still don't see you. As long as you don't pull the trigger on the weapon, they don't know where you are, mm-hmm. so I I decided this is this is pretty cool when it gets dark. You know, 
That's all. I'll find you if you're out there. How long would it take when you guys would settle into a perimeter? How long would it take for the noise, the silence that you had created to to escalate again to normal jungle levels? Within 30 minutes. So once everybody's down, mm-hmm. and, and the rule was once you're down, you're down. You do not move again until morning because anybody moving is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And we would we would all position ourselves so that, you know, I could reach Echo over here, um, or the guy on the next side of me, mm-hmm. to wake him up or alert him something was happening. And Echo's arm's so big I can't really do this. But <laughs> if if I could have your arm, if you want to wake somebody up without terrifying them, grab them right there, and just slowly squeeze. Mm-hmm. And if you just slowly squeeze like that, what you'll see is their eyes start to open up and they just come to you. And, you know, and we trained to do that. So people knew uh, if you get squeezed, you open your eyes. That's the only thing you move. Start listening. What do you hear? Uh, and it might be your turn uh, to be on guard mm-hmm. or it might be there's an enemy out there. Yeah, that's crazy. I just got chicken skin from that. <laughs> Bro, I can only imagine. Like, you feel that. You're like, oh, that's you, crazy, man. You, how long what, would you guys do 50% security and 50% sleeping, or would you guys do less than it, that because you didn't really need it? Yeah, sometimes we, we drop down to 30%. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I know teams that everybody goes to sleep, mm-hmm. but I, not, not with me. <laughs> I, I'm not going there. Somebody's going to be awake and we're here. And, uh, you know, sometimes you had to sleep. It, you would you wouldn't sleep on top of the ridge. You had to get off on the side, and you try to get into a thicket. You try to get into a steep area, so you learn to sleep straddle trees. So you straddle it, so you won't slide on down the hill at night. Um, it's a little uncomfortable at first. You got to get set up right, but once you do, um, you know you can sleep like that. Keep your arms through your rucksack because you wanted your rucksack to go with you if you had to leave in a hurry. Uh, your load-bearing equipment never came off. The weapon was always fastened to you with a, a cord that went through a snap link on the shoulder, your uh, load-bearing gear. Uh, you'd have it laying across your lap. So, you know, you could put your hands on it real easy and turn it and shoot it as you ha- if you had to. You had your knife where you could access that, you know, easily quietly in case you needed it so and then nobody moved and then uh that first overnight mission that you did what was what was the purpose of the operation we were uh going to find this um relatively small uh, battalion size element um, (laughs) and there's how many of you guys this mission is probably seven. So there's seven of you looking for 500 enemy North yeah, Vietnamese yeah. regulars. And one of the things I think, <laughs> I, I know it sounds a little crazy. One of the things you it have sounds to, a lot crazy. <clears throat> one of the things you have to understand about a, a SOG team is SOG teams were small, but they carried a really big stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Given the stick might be 30 minutes away before you could use it, uh, and sometimes an hour, but, man, you had a big stick because uh, if you engage the enemy, as soon as you transmitted the word prairie fire, 
over the radio, everything flying within range of that team was diverted, everything. Any aircraft that had ordnance on it, any mission that was going on was set aside. It all came to you. It was unbelievable. I mean, I had a, I had a mission one time where I had 14 Cobras in orbit <laughs> waiting on their turn to come in because I had to bring them in in between the L-4s that were coming in and the Sky Raiders that would come. They were all, I mean, it was just unreal, you know, what would show up once you got in trouble. Yeah, I guess that, that is the security blanket. Although, bad weather. Then you're in trouble. Nighttime? Um, you could do a, do some at nighttime. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we didn't have the night vision. Uh, the aircraft didn't have the technology that they have today. So mm-hmm. nighttime was a problem for them. Uh, you could do something called combat sky spots where the L-4s could come in and and, and drop 500-pound bombs, but they were doing it based on radar. So you had to start them like 2,500, 3,000 meters away and bring them in because you didn't know where they were going to land. They would be somewhere, you know, in, in that circle, but you had to let something hit and then start to work it. So, yeah, the nighttime, you know, could be a problem. Yeah. Uh, you got you got a book here. You mentioned it really quickly. It's called The Stress Effect, and it's it's about leadership and decision making. But you have some some um, stories in it that are that are worth talking about. I, w- I want to read one of them right now. So it says, for almost two years, I had been training to lead a special operations team in a combat. <clears throat> During those two years, I successfully completed U.S. Army Ranger School, Special Forces training, become a member of the most elite military force in the world. When I got to base camp in Vietnam, 1968, I erected a six-foot-tall two-by-four board in the dirt and wrapped hemp rope around the top eight inches of the board to provide a striking surface. Every day in camp, I pounded the striking pad with my fists and my feet, continuing to improve my accuracy and power. I had been trained in Ranger and Special Forces hand-to-hand combat and had earned a black belt in the Korean martial art of Taekwondo. I'd become an expert with all special operations weapons as well. I quickly found myself. So you guys, you had some introduction to to martial arts. Mm -hmm. And they were teaching you guys some striking capability, did you guys learn any grappling at all? Yeah. I mean, you, you did that uh, in Special Forces and in Ranger School. You did, you know, the military version of a hand-to-hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had um, trained in, you know, Taekwondo mm-hmm. when I was in college. I broke my hand one night in a little pub, mm-hmm. and I thought, there's got to be a You broke your hand on a pub? Or no. You broke your uh, hand on a— on a pub uh, attendee. <laughs> I, 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 there was an attendee <laughs> that ran into, ran into my hand and, and, and broke it. And I, I was thinking, there's got to be a better way than this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen these guys jumping around doing kung fu or whatever on movies. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, I found this uh, uh, taekwondo place, you know, right off campus there. And I went in and I said, you know, I need to toughen up a little bit. Yeah. I'm tired of you know, getting hurt. So, yeah. <clears throat> right on. Back to the book. I quickly found myself deep inside enemy territory, leading my elite team of three Americans and four mercenaries on a classified mission. Every human <clears throat> within a hundred miles was the enemy. 
The temperature was 110 degrees, the humidity was 100%. The salt from our own perspiration constantly burned our eyes. Mosquitoes swarmed. Each of us carried 35 to 40 pounds of ammunition, grenades, and water on our load-bearing harness and a 75-pound rucksack on our back. No one wore an armored vest or a helmet because these would add too much extra weight and would be too hot. We were operating under triple canopy jungle that allowed very little light to come through and no air movement. It rained every day, everything was wet. The bushes in the ground were covered with small leeches that began to move up and down frantically when they sensed our body heat, thinking they would have a meal soon. They attached themselves to us without our noticing them. The next day we would find them on our faces, chest, arms, and legs filled with blood and the size of our the and being the size of our thumbs. The physical and mental stress was very high. This type of mission required complete silence, no talking for days, just hand and arm signals or notes. <clears throat> there could be absolutely no noise while moving. We were traveling along at a snail's pace of a hundred yards an hour. Every step and every foot placement were pre-planned. Toe down first, then slowly the heel. This technique was designed to muffle the noise of any small branches that might be broken if we accidentally placed our weight on them. Each team member had an area of responsibility for maintaining vigilance as we moved. We were always looking for booby traps, ambushes, enemy personnel, poisonous snakes, and tigers. We couldn't forget the 500-pound hungry tigers. We knew a North Vietnamese army force was very close to us we just didn't know exactly where we spent most of the day moving up to the top of a ridge one step at a time without making a sound just as we neared the top the point man signaled to us to halt and get down he could hear a large group of enemy soldiers just over the ridge our hearts began to race and adrenaline spiked our seven-man team was about to come face to face with over 180 trained north vietnamese army soldiers our stress levels soared and our attention became focused. We knew everything we, we knew everything could literally explode at any second. The closest help was an hour away. We could make no mistakes and we could not be discovered. I moved forward into a position to observe the enemy soldiers who were less than 40 yards down the other side of the ridge from our location. They appeared to have finished eating and were getting ready to move up the ridge towards our location. I signaled the team that we needed to move quickly. Although the ground was muddy, slippery, and steep, we tried to move as quickly and quietly as possible. It was going to be very difficult to avoid contact with them, and contact would be deadly. I was about 20 feet behind the point man, moving deliberately, tightly gripping the handle of my Car 15 machine gun with my right hand while using my left hand to steady myself by grabbing bushes as I moved. It started to rain hard, making it even more difficult to get us help if we were discovered. We could hear the enemy talking on the other side of the ridge. Then, out of nowhere, I was hit so hard from the high side of the ridge that my weapon was knocked out of my hand and my feet left the ground and I was falling backward down the side of the steep ridge. Instinctively, I grabbed my attacker as I fell and took him with me. My stress level was so high that all my hand-to-hand combat training automatically kicked in. As I tumbled down the incline in the rain and mud, I literally ripped my attacker limb from limb, biting, pulling, and breaking any part I could get my hands on. I used every deadly move I knew and actually heard the sounds of bones breaking. Although the entire event lasted only a few seconds, it appeared to pass in slow motion. A stream of thoughts and questions went through my mind. Where did this guy come from? How did I miss seeing him? Does he have a knife? How can I get my knife? Is he alone? Will he call his comrades before I can silence him? Then it was over as quickly as it began. We were wedged hard against a large tree that, large tree that stopped our tumble down the ridge. The impact momentarily knocked the breath out of me. 
The attacker was not moving. Apparently, I was the winner. All my hand-to-hand combat training had paid off. Looking up the ridge, I saw some of my team members looking down at me with sheer horror and shock on their faces. It must have been almost as terrifying for them as it was for me, I thought. Everyone's life hung in the balance, but I had won the fight. Mano e mano. I had saved the team. As I began to untangle myself from my attacker, the world suddenly came back into focus. Now I had the same horror and shock on my face as my team members did. I had just used all my expert hand-to-hand combat techniques on a banana tree. In that part of the world, worms eat around the bottom of the banana trees, which weakens them and causes them to fall without warning. I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and be blindsided by a falling banana tree. Fortunately, two components to this event ultimately saved us. First, I was hit so hard and unexpectedly that my weapon was knocked out of my hand, preventing me from firing at the tree and giving away our position. Second, it was raining so hard that the enemy soldiers did not notice the commotion. We completed our mission and returned to Vietnam unharmed except for my ego. I have heard, however, that banana trees in that part of the world still tremble at the mention of my name. (laughs) (laughs) Good times. uh, A little embarrassing, but uh, (laughs) yeah. You know, those stress levels were so so high. It just, you know, you're locked, loaded, you're ready to go, and something triggers you and you go for it, you know, you react. (laughs) It's just, just the the instinct. Somebody had me, and it was me or him. And you know, I just unleashed everything I still had, and until I killed the banana tree. But um, yeah, I can walk by one today, even in other countries, and they tremble. They know. Um, they they know. know. They know. The legend is real. Yeah, you can see the little limbs turn and watch me to make sure I go on by. Yeah. It is amazing, you know, the point of you telling that story, talking about stress and, and you know, I, I one thing that I noticed about it is when we are anticipating something, <clears throat> oftentimes we will we will see what we are anticipating. Yeah. So when we are predicting enemy combat, then that's what we're gonna see. And you have another great uh, vignette in here about a shooting that took place in New York and it was, you know, a guy that was standing in the stoop of a doorway and the police officer see him and he looked kind of suspicious. And eventually, well, when he moved, they said, oh, he's trying to run from us. So now they draw their weapons. And the next thing he does is reach into his pocket. They start shooting. And once one person starts shooting, they all start shooting and they end up putting 40 plus rounds in and into the guy and into the surround guy, you know, because they didn't they didn't shoot very accurately. But you know, it turns out that the guy was just a normal citizen that fit the description of, you know, fit the description of a person that had conducted some crimes in the area. But you know, it wasn't like he was. It wasn't like a specific description. I think it was like as a black guy in this neighborhood. Oh, looks pretty close. But what they anticipated seeing and what they got kind of mentally ready for, and then he makes a move to get away from them. In their mind, he's making a move to get away from them. In his mind, he's just trying to get out of the way. Who knows what these cops are doing, but they they can't be after me. And then the next thing is they're yelling at him, oh, I better get them some ID. So he reaches into his pocket, 
What do they think he's reaching for? They're anticipating he's reaching for a weapon, so they kill him. So that's a great lesson learned. And you know, you talk a lot in the book, The Stress Effect, about, you call it awareness, being aware of what's going on. I always use the word detachment, being detached from all the chaos and emotion and how, what, what a great power it is to have that. You know, it's the same word or different word, same meaning, the awareness that you talk about. But that example right there, what you're anticipating, there's a good chance that what you're anticipating you're gonna see, you're gonna see regardless yeah. of what reality is. Yeah, it's not a banana tree. <laughs> That's a <laughs> North Vietnamese soldier, highly trained and skilled, and he's trying to take me out yeah. uh, and doing a good job because I'm falling backwards. I can't shoot him. And, um, yeah, I mean, in, in the story you're talking about, as they approach him and start shooting, you know, the two first two guys to get that get there, one starts shooting, and uh, – what happens is some of the bullets are hitting on you know different parts of of the stoop there and start to ricochet back. That's right. In their mind, he's shooting at them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bullets are coming back at him. They think he's shooting. The uh, the other guy with him trips on the steps and falls. So his partner thinks, man, he, they hit him. Mm-hmm. He's down. The other two are up there. They think he's down, and you know they all just continue to shoot, and an innocent guy. Mm-hmm. So we we see what we're expecting. We have to be careful with that, and it happens. You know, it, it happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, when the adrenaline starts flowing, uh, you're going to do a lot of things that, that you need to keep it under control. And mm-hmm. in, in their ways, part of it, I'm probably getting off track here, but some of it is practice, practice, practice. You know. Go through the immediate action drills. You keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Now, one of the things uh, I used to make my guys practice that they really didn't like was when we were going on a mission because you're going to be out there for so long, um, You, the one zero carried a, a medical kit. So I'd have a medical kit with me. Everyone there carried, uh, it came in a can back then, just a, a little can about that big around, mm-hmm. you had it taped on the back of your web gear, and had a bag of ringer solution in it, a blood expander. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you when you get hit, most of the time what you die of from a gunshot wound is you bleed to death. Mm-hmm. You can't get the blood you know, stopped or you're in time. Uh, so we all carried a, a bag of ringer solution, so you, know, you could get an IV right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. Well, my thinking was, especially after the, that first incident when I was having trouble getting the magazine and the weapon. I don't want one of my guys trying to put that needle in my arm <laughs> in that condition, and he's jabbing all over my arm, and I'm laying there bleeding to death. I, I need the blood. So I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We have a little practice. So I had been over to the uh, dispensary, and I had gotten some needles, and I brought them over, and I said, we're going to practice putting the needle in each other. Mm-hmm. So that you know, if we're getting shot at, you've done it before. It won't be the first time that you've tried to put a needle in a the vein. They did not like that. Um, because, okay, now swap partners. Yeah. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And every so often we would go through that drill. Let's practice. Let's practice opening a can. You know, you don't want to have never tried to open that can before. When somebody's shooting at you and your buddy is bleeding to death, you, you have to have been through the whole process. Let's do it. Well, these lessons that you learned and that you passed on, I mean, everything from 
you know, getting on the ground and, and patrolling 100 meters and then waiting. I mean, that's that's what we were trying. Now, I'll t- I will say that once you got night vision, things are different because you didn't need to wait a half an hour to let yeah. your night vision adjust. You could you could go. But, you know, we used to we used to do the same thing. We used to get give each other IVs with red lens flashlights yeah. at night underneath a poncho because yeah. that's what you're going to have to do. And, and so those are the kind of things that you have to train. You have to train. And people that think that, that that horrible thought that creeps into your mind that well when the time rises when the time arises I'll I'll know what to do that is no. not the truth right there I got a quick question for you how did you get the name dynamite was that your nickname did they assign that to you because I'm surprised at this point your nickname wasn't banana tree <laughs> <laughs> For, fortunately you got your code name on day 1 so uh, after we got the briefing the the, the name and then you know we had to select a, a code name. Um, I wanted Ranger. Ranger was already taken, <laughs> uh, so they said here are some others. And, and I, was, I saw Dynamite, and I said, you know, I I really do like to blow things up. <laughs> so I'm I'm small, and uh, you know, Dynamite probably works for me. I mean, I blew my neighbor's windows out when I was a teenager one time with a rocket that exploded <laughs> on the, on my launch pad. I, I didn't intend for that to happen, but, you know, I was always blowing things up. So, uh, And then when I was there in uh, Southeast Asia, yeah, I blew things up all the time. I blew bridges up. I blew up all kinds of things. And I always carried a lot of demo with me. So... Good, good nickname, and that was your call sign too. Was that your call sign when you're in the field? Would no, you, would you no. Be? In the well, it it would be my call sign if I was wounded or something like that. Got it. Um, but call signs that we use were always uh, three letter groups. Okay, got so. it. All right, you you mentioned <clears throat> in your notes here that you gave me a, an op where you guys hit with you guys got hit with gas. Yeah, that was. Uh, that had to be unexpected. That was still with Dex team. Um, yeah, we we had planned and rehearsed for everything, and we went in. Uh, it wasn't a hot LZ, or didn't appear to be. We didn't draw any fire going in. Uh, we got off the aircraft. The aircraft, you know, took off. We're on the ground, and all of a sudden, you know, we couldn't see. You couldn't breathe. This stuff is coming across the LZ. And, you know, we were coughing and gagging because we didn't have masks with us. Masks uh, were like helmets and plaque jackets. That's extra weight you got to carry. And unless we were intending to use gas, we didn't carry it because Uh it was just very, very rare uh, that the NVA would use gas. And in this case, we're on the LZ. Here comes the gas. Um, We're not prepared for it. We had to call you know, for the aircraft to come back and get us out, uh, it creates a real problem for pilots. If they if they don't have masks, and now all of a sudden they're getting all of the, the gas coming in, you know, it's hard for them to see the instrument panel to be able to fly, you know, but they came back in and, and they got us out. It, was, um, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant experience, <laughs> and it was one of those things we didn't plan for it, you know, because it was, it was yeah. such a rarity and we just didn't do it. I was surprised we went through a gear list with Tilt, and they always carried a gas mask. And, and of course, it, because they always carried a gas mask, you know how many times they came across it? I think the number was zero. Yeah. <laughs> now, Murphy's now, Law. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times we would carry uh, 
gas canister. We'd, we'd carry a regular, you know, like a CS grenade. A CS grenade, but we'd also carry the the CS rounds for the M49, the 40 yeah. millimeter, so we could shoot those. But if we carried uh, CS or or the the grenades, then you know we carried the mask mm-hmm. too. But it was the mask were because we were going to use them, and and. You know, if you use gas, you better have a mask, or you're going to be as bad off as the other guys goes. Yeah. Without fail, the wind's going to change, <laughs> and it's going to come right back on you, and you're in trouble. Murphy's so. law. You got a you got another note in here about a mission. It says tree roots. This was, I think this this was my last mission with RT Alabama with uh, with Deck. And we had gone up. We made the little fish hook. We came back. It was early afternoon, and we were going to take a break for a little while. So we had put out the claymores. I had put a, a toe popper out. And they, there were some strange trees in that area. I'm still not sure what they're called, but um, they almost looked like rockets with fins. Mm. The roots kind of came out i mean it kind of you know they'd grow up the tree uh maybe two feet or so and and they'd come out like fins all the way around uh so we were taking a break so i thought you know i'll just lay down between you know these these roots and i you know you won't be able to see me because i'm kind of down in there and that's where i'll take my break and then we hear the toe popper go off I heard that loud scream, and as soon as the toe popper went off, it's just this barrage of AK-47 fire coming. Some of it, you know, in our direction, some of it in other directions. They didn't know exactly where we were. But in that first barrage coming through, I had three AK rounds come through the root on my left side. Right across my shirt, I had just exhaled and threw the root on the other side. If I had, had just inhaled, it would have taken the top of my chest off when it came by. So it just grazed me, you know, coming across. And I said, hmm, I, I probably should get out of here. Um, so, because the roots are not providing any, you know, actual cover for me, just a little concealment. So I jumped around behind a tree and, you know, we set off the claymores, had a full fledged, um, you know, firefight going on. Eventually had to work gunships and things and uh, get extracted. but. Uh, one of the things that I also did was got another taste of the impact of adrenaline because when I came out from behind a tree, uh, I had taken my arms out of the straps on the rucksack. So I had to grab it with my hand, and I grabbed it with my left hand. You know, and it weighed probably 75 pounds, but I'm, I'm not a big guy, but I'm tossing that. 75 pound rucksack around like it's a pillow uh and you know it's going to go with me as we fight our way you know down the ridge and and toward the lz um but i paid for it you know later on you know after we got extracted i realized i had pulled muscles in my shoulders because you know muscles wasn't designed to handle that much weight but i had so much adrenaline pumping pumping through my system then that, yeah. So, so as soon as you guys get contacted, as soon as that those rounds start coming, you're calling prairie, prairie fire, fire emergency. Prairie fire. Yeah. And then how long is it taking before aircraft show up on station? Usually you'll have something within 30 minutes. 
that, that you might be able to work a gunship or something like that. But for the extraction ships, it might be an hour, depending you know on how far in there you are. And it might be longer than that. Uh, but if you had bad weather, nobody's coming because they you know they can't find you. They how good was the you. weather prediction at that time? You know, if you guys were you guys able to look out in a day and say like, hey, there's there's going to be storms moving through here tomorrow. We at at the different CNCs, we had our own Air Force meteorologist that tracked the weather, gave mm-hmm. weather weather briefings, you know, two or three times a day, you know, to the command group. Um, the teams would get them. We would get them before we would go out, uh, so that we would know kind of what to expect. Um, and you know, we didn't launch unless the weather looked like it was going to be good. Uh, you know, for the insertion because you didn't want to get out there and all of a sudden you couldn't use the the assets that you had with you. So, um, but still, it's kind of like today. The best weather predictions that are made are the ones the day after. You know, we can tell you what probably happened yesterday or at least with a high probability of what <laughs> happened yesterday. Um, but the weather change, you know, it's a, where we were up north most of the time. Is a rainforest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to rain every so day. So it's going to rain. Yeah, every day it's going to rain. Uh, and the clouds would roll right down on top of the, the mountain uh, and just totally conceal it, conceal the ridge lines. So not only are you under triple canopy jungle a lot, now you've got a, co- a cloud cover over it. Mm. I mean, up above that, they can see fine, but they can't see where you are. They can't, you know, you can fire the flyer, flares out. They won't see them because they're in the clouds. Is uh, is it always the one zero that's carrying the radio and talking to the aircraft, or the who who usually was doing that for you? I know that Tilt said he did it. He would be like, "Yep, I'm going to talk to the aircraft." Most of the time, I carried the radio. I mean, you had you had a guy. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the three Americans was supposed to be carrying the radio. Um, usually, the the one two. If you had a one two, um, but I carried mine almost all the time. And, but even if I didn't carry it, I wanted to talk. So <laughs> bring it, bring it over here. I want to tell them, you know, what I need to, to have done. So you know, that gave me another twenty five pounds plus, depending on how many batteries I carried, um, more weight to go in my rucksack. And that's if we used, you know, the PRC twenty five or seventy seven. But I think Tilt mentioned at one point uh, we had a commander take over CCN who said, you're going to carry the KY-38, mm-hmm. a secure radio, um, which, you know, the PRC-77 was about 25 pounds, and then it had to connect into the KY-38, which was the, the, the same, same square, <laughs> but, but thicker. Mm. <laughs> you know, and they had to fasten together. So some people would stack them on a rucksack, one under the, the other. Uh-huh. Most people were wearing the 77 in the back and, and the 38 in the front to, to help you balance, yeah. you know, going up and down the hills and it's the mud. a good theory. But, <laughs> you know, I, to me, and my experience said, the more you can look like an empty pair of, of fatigues laying on the ground, the greater your chance of survival when somebody's shooting at you. 
So the more stuff you put on your chest or around your waist that raises you up in the air, makes mm-hmm. you more of tr- I mean, I get my rucksack shot up all the time. I mean, I'd be laying there in bullets and just zinging through the rucksack because it was sticking up, you know, mm-hmm. above me. But when you put that KY-38 on your chest, Eesh. that pushes your body up another six inches in the air. So now the chances of you getting hit instead of the rucksack go up. So I didn't like to carry it. Uh, I only used it a few times. I mean, it it had a pretty high malfunction rate. Yeah. And then because it's not just on you, you got to make sure that the aircraft that you're trying to talk to is running their encryption device. Everybody right. has to have to have that same encryption. Um, which is an interesting story we may get to a little later about that. But, yeah, it was a, a pain. But I, I wanted to talk on mm-hmm. the radio. And you guys didn't – I know Tilt, they didn't carry, like, a belt-fed machine gun in their elements. And I think he said they never did, which to me was surprising because, like, a, you talk to Vietnam SEAL platoons and even, the, like, my SEAL platoons in Iraq – we carried as many belt-fed machine guns as we could. Like, we wanted to have massive firepower. But I guess for you guys, the jungle, the weight, it was too much. My my team carried one, an M60 machine gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, M60s are heavy. They are heavy, indeed. Um, my team carried one one time because I thought it would be cool. <laughs> I carried the machine gun because I thought, man, the firepower I'll have with this thing, I can show those guys on the other side there (laughs) what war is all about. Um, And we made contact, and I opened up with that baby. And I learned a lesson really quickly. And it made sense, you know, when it happened because we always teach you got to take the machine gun out. Yeah. Ship your fire to wherever that machine gun is. Take that joker out. Yeah. And that's what they did. And all of a sudden, everybody's shooting at all me you on the other popular, side. You were the most popular <laughs> uh-huh. target you know, out whoa. there. You know, I mean, this stuff is just coming in on me, and it's just eating everything up. And I'm getting behind a tree and keeping my head around. I'm shooting the machine gun around the side of the tree, but I can't you know, really see what I'm doing. But yeah. I couldn't take my head around there. They'd take it all. <laughs> and so after that mission, that's, that's enough of that. I mean, I'm not carrying one again. <laughs> now, when, you know, when we put team, if we put two teams together to make what we call a spike team, mm-hmm. you know, where we were going in with, with the intent of engaging the enemy and not running, um, then we would carry, you know, two M60s at least. And then, you know, when you carry an M60, everybody on the team has to carry uh, M60 ammo. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's got at least one 100-round belt with them, Mm -hmm. you know, plus the machine gun is carrying all that extra weight. So, I mean, it's it doesn't just weight down the machine gun. It's Mm -hmm. everybody on the team now is still going to carry all those 40-millimeter you know, grenades with them for the M79, you still got to carry that. You still got to carry your extra claymores. You got to carry all your mission equipment. And now I'm giving you another 15, 20 pounds of machine gun ammo to carry along with you. You know, there's only five or six of you. Um, The weight just goes up so fast that we didn't do it. Yeah, and I guess another note I'm sitting here thinking about it, the fact that you guys were in generally enclosed terrain pretty tight it wasn't like you needed massive cover fire to cover mm-hmm. ground to put to, to you know you could you didn't have to fire and maneuver because you take three steps and all of a sudden the enemy can't see you anymore yeah. 
So that that makes a little bit of sense too. What was your op tempo like? You know, we're talking about these missions. How often were you guys going out? That's an interesting story, and in it varied by team. And like, well, in in the twelve months that I was there, I went out eighteen times, which was way beyond way beyond what an officer uh, led team would do. I don't know that the other teams were going out that frequently, um, you know, in that short a period. Mm-hmm. The paper that you signed when you joined SOG said, you know, I volunteer to go anywhere, do anything for six months or six missions, whichever comes first. Got it. At the end of the six missions or the six months, I've got to say I volunteer to do it some more. So you had this you know, a little safety valve in there to give you a chance to kind of wake up and say, this is not a smart thing to do. <laughs> and <laughs> and here's my ticket to do something different. Right. Um, well, that's like sort of like the bombers in, in World War II that had to do 25 missions over Europe. And if they yeah. did 25, then they, then they could go and do something else, go home. Right. Most of them didn't make it. But, yeah, that's pretty telling when they say that you will only have to complete six missions. That doesn't sound like a big deal. You must be thinking to yourself, if they only want me to do six of these things, (laughs) they got to be pretty airy. If I only have to go out six times in six months, I mean, I've got a good deal. You know, the the grunts are going out there every day and and fighting, you know, or doing something or being exposed. And, you know, so you had that. um, and And remember that. SOG missions, a SOG mission really is an out-of-country mission. You know, as Tilt says, across the fence. You're mm-hmm. going to another country. Um, when you see the uh, casualties, you know, the KIAs of, of SOG, at least in the beginning, they all said South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That's not where they were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were, you were going out. But in between those missions, uh, you might do something in country. Um, like Lynn, Lynn Black, one of uh, Tilt's big buddies, they were on the same team and stuff for a while. Lynn was, uh, you know, just a unbelievable one zero, and he and I, you know, kind of became friends. And uh, in between missions, we would do things like, why don't we take some of our guys tonight? And let's go with the Marble Mountain, set up an ambush. I guarantee you we'll catch somebody here. <laughs> and let's go do that. Uh, what about tomorrow afternoon? You want to take some of our guys? Let's go search some of the caves in Mar- Marble Mountain. Those jokers are in there. We mm-hmm. just have to find them. You know, so we would we would do a lot of things like that just for fun, mm-hmm. so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, because, you know, compared to, to yeah. a regular mission, I mean, yeah. this is a no-brainer. You just go over there and you shoot some people. You know, you yeah. catch them in the cave and, and hose Compared them down. Compared to 40 miles deep into yeah. Cambodia yeah. alone. And when we, you know, we, we can be back in time for lunch. I mean, let's just go do this. <laughs> so, and then you had, uh, you know, Marble Mountain, the two combat outposts. Uh, teams would rotate up there. You had to keep, you know, two teams up there all the time. So in between missions, you know, they, you might go up there for a week or two weeks at a time uh, and then come back down and start mission prep you know, for another mission and to go back out. Um, So it wasn't like you were just sitting around Mm -hmm. in between the missions. You were always doing something. uh, Plus, you've done a lot of training. 
and preparation for the next mission that you had coming up. So you stayed stayed pretty busy. How long would it take you to brief a mission when you were going on? Um, we might start with the initial briefing as a as a day. Uh, briefing, this is what we're going to go to do, is where we're going to go do it. And depending on what the mission was, I might say, okay, so we're going to go over uh, to a place that was called Monkey Mountain. Uh, we're going over to Monkey Mountain because it's a good place over there for us to rehearse the actual mission, the raid, the ambush, whatever it was we were going to do. Uh, we can go over there and, and get in some you know realistic rehearsals. So we might go spend a few days over there just doing that. And we, while we're there, we re- rehearse our uh, RON procedures, putting on the claymores, where do we put them. I would put the team in a different place every night so that you had to, okay, you know, let's look at the train we're in now. What's the most likely approaches? What do we need to defend the claymores? Where do we put the toe poppers? What's our avenue of egress? How do we get out of here? If they come at us from this direction or this direction, where do we go? And where's where are the closest LZs that we're going to go to? And how do we get there? Everybody needs to know that. You know, whether you're American or indeed, you've got to know where it is. You've got to know how to get there. And so we would we would do the, the training like that, but particularly mission-specific for what we're coming up on. Uh, and then as you got closer, uh, you would get much more specific. And then when you got to the launch site, uh, you would have the mission briefing where uh, – your air assets would be there. So the pilots who were going to fly your insertion, the gunship pilots, um, an Air Force representative for uh, the A1Es that were going to be there, the L4s that were going to be there. You know, So you would have the big briefing there and everybody would agree on everything and make sure you had all the call signs and everything down and contingency actions. Um, the Covey, I haven't said anything about him, we'd, we'd always have a Covey out there with a forward air controller mm-hmm. uh, that we could talk to and could look down and tell us what you know he was seeing. Uh, might be able to see the bad guys coming to us or whatever. Uh, he could get more assets for us. So um, it, it was a it was a big deal. I mean because you you might have four gunships, uh, two to four A1E Sky Raiders, two to four F4s. Uh, you've got Cubby, you've got the insertion ships that you're going in with, you've got trailing ships in case those get shot down that are flying empty so they can drop down and, and pick you up. Sometimes you might have a ship with the medics in it because you're expecting casualties. You know, so it was a, it could be a big air show sometimes going and put in. If you were going, if you're going to North Vietnam, you had to have the F-4s. You all, I mean, it was just required for the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the others, eh, Laos, Cambodia, you could go without the F-4s and you just use the A-1E Sky Raiders. But if you're going North Vietnam, you better have the F-4s with you because they could send a MiG down there after mm-hmm. you if they wanted to. So you had to worry about you know air cover uh, as well as hitting you know, big targets. And an L-4... You know, it can get your attention real fast. <laughs> and the Sky Raiders, you know, do too because they 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 fly low, slow, and they're carrying their own weight and ordnance. Mm-hmm. And they can put it right next to you. You tell them where you want it. That 20 millimeters hitting 10 feet over there, 
and ride along beside you or whatever the ordinance they're carrying. Um, you can get your attention. I mean, those those jokers are good. All right. So you, so how many missions did you do with RT Alabama? Uh, four. And then after that, did you get the up check from deck to, to uh, become a one zero? Yes. So I, I had gotten that. I mean, I already, I had it before we did the four, but we knew uh, that FOB1 was going to close down. And when it closed down, the teams were going to get scattered around. Um, so I knew I, w- I would get a team, but I would get one somewhere else. Uh, so we just stayed together, you know, for those four missions. And then uh, when we moved, when I moved uh, to Da Nang, uh, to CCN, then I took over RT Michigan, and RT Michigan was the one that had. Um, I don't remember who the one zero had been on that one, um, but Eldon Bargewell mm. uh, was the one one <laughs> on that one. So I I took over over that, uh, and you know. He, you know the guys. He was, he was, he was a listed guy at the time. He was back four, I think. Yeah, I mean, and he was already a legend. Well, he he already had a good reputation. A good reputation, um, you know. So we, I mean, we got along well because uh, I had asked about him because I, I didn't. Right. You know, he was a different camp. I didn't know about him, so I had asked about him, and everybody I talked to said, "Man, you know, this guy is good." Um, he, he had he, he had was asking a, everyone else about you too. He was asking about me, and, and he, he told me. And I said, well, "What did they tell you?" And he said, "Well, I I talked to, you know, Sergeant Jones, and you know, it, it was impressive because he said, and you know, I had total faith in him. He said Thompson is the only lieutenant I've ever met that you could give a map and compass to, and he could tell you where he was." And he could navigate you to any place you wanted mm-hmm. to go. And he said, you just don't find lieutenants like that. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, Bargewell said that was good enough for him. If I knew where we were. Yeah. So, Isn't it surprising that that, that would be a skill that's so needed and, and that people didn't actually have it sometimes? It's crazy. Yeah. And these days, well, you know, kids, kids are relying on the GPS. Yeah. And they forget about some of those land nav skills. And it always cracked me up because they're now they're to a point where they re- really rely on the GPS. They don't know their pace <laughs> count, and you know I'd be walking on a training operation. You know, it's like okay, <clears throat> you know, just not even thinking about looking at a GPS because I did a map study and know where we're at. And those younger guys, you know, they just they just don't have this. Not all of them, of course. You know, we still get some guys that are great at it, but it's just a different time. So you take over this. Uh, you take over this new team. You got Barswell. Which I'm sure you heard me talking about it with Tilt, but um, but you know he was when I was a young officer, I just got picked up for a commission and I went to Germany and he was the guy in charge over there. And so and my boss, who was a outstanding guy, who was a great mentor to me, but he he would kind of tell me you know about about the old man. He'd say Barswell said this and Barswell said that, you know. So that was pretty neat for me to make this connection. And here you are sitting here that uh, actually he was your he was your one one. <laughs> yeah, and he I mean he was very knowledgeable, very good. 
And I, you know, I was impressed with him right from the beginning. And I, I thought, I mean, th- this guy is good. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when we went out on an operation, he's as cool and calm. Um, you know, when the shooting started, I mean, he was good. But I mean, he had he had experience. I mean, he was at Kaysai with with the team there, the siege of Kaysai. I mean, mm-hmm. he was. He was there. I mean, where they just got hammered for mm-hmm. you know several weeks there. Um, he was you know there with that um, special forces detachment. He had recruited, actually had recruited some of the team members that we had. And this was a yard team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they all liked him. They all had a lot of respect for him. Um, and he, you know, he he was a smart guy. Um, I just never thought then you know where he would end up i i figured you know he's if he doesn't get killed uh he he's probably going to be somebody at some point but i didn't expect to see him i don't know i guess it was in the in the late 70s i saw him at fort bragg no i guess it was in the 80s i saw him at fort bragg and he was a, a captain Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, how can you be a captain? I'm, you know, I, I'm a major. Yeah, you were a spec four the last time I saw you, <laughs> and now you're a captain. And and I, you know, I thought that was great. So we hung out a little bit. He was in um, Delta, uh-huh. so we chatted about you know Delta Force and all that kind of stuff, and um, you know, had some good times while we were there together at Bragg. And then I guess. You know, the next time I actually saw him, uh, he, he was a major. And he's at command, going through the command of general staff college. And I'm thinking, I'm about to get promoted, but I'm still a major too. <laughs> how's, this, how's this guy doing this? And, you know, then the next thing, he's a lieutenant colonel, and then he's a full colonel, and, you know, ends up a major general. And he just he's just constantly going. And everybody kept telling me, um, get out of special forces. Special yeah. forces is a kiss of death for an officer. You stay uh-huh. in special forces, uh, you're not going anywhere. Well, he did. Yeah. I mean, not only did he did great on uh, that tour with SOG, uh, he did a, a second tour. Uh, he ended up uh, command not just being in Delta. He came back and commanded Delta Force. And then overall special operations and all this kind of stuff. I mean, just unbelievable. So. Did you notice any qualities? I mean, I, you said you looked at him and you were like, oh, yeah, this this guy will do well if he lives. Yeah. Was there any qualities that stand out? You know, if, they're, if, they're, if you're a young enlisted guy in the Army right now or in any branch and, and you say to yourself, you know, I want to be a good soldier, is there anything that you noticed about him that you would give as, like, guidance to young people young trooper out there he's mission focused you tell him this is what what you need to do or where you need to go i mean he's gonna make it happen uh cool calm um he was a smart guy i mean he didn't brag about it when you talk to him um just very humble and but you could tell i mean he's smart Mm mm-hmm I mean, he's thinking about what you're saying and what he comes out with, and when he makes recommendations and talks about things, you, you need to be listening because he's thought to step through. Um, 
no, but no fear from a combat perspective. I mean, if the bad guys are coming, he's going to take them out. Um, and, you know, demonstrated that, you know, on, on several occasions with me, demonstrated it later on. Um, I think he got, I think he got hit the next mission after he was with me. Um, but he, he had put on an AK-47 mm-hmm. vest, you know, so. Got shot in, got shot in, 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 in the, the magazine or something. Yeah, it went in the magazine. <laughs> it, you know, he poked through enough to make a little hole in him, but it didn't go all the way through, you know. Um, but, and then he, you know, on a, another mission, he got shot a couple more times. And another mission, the B-40 rocket hit the team. Everybody was wounded. He had a piece of shrapnel go in through his uh, cheek and kind of lodged by, over behind his eye. You know, so he's bleeding like a stuck pig. And, you know, the bad guys are coming and, you know, he takes out 20 of them. Because he's got a an RPD, you know, the the Soviet kind of a light mm-hmm. machine gun, uh, and he he just taking people out right and left, you know, with the whole everybody wounded, including him. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what he did. Yeah. Uh, the only general uh, on record that for a personal firearm carried an AK forty seven. <laughs> an AK-47. I mean, he's walking around as a general officer, and instead of having that little pop gun on his hip, he's got an AK-47 slung over his shoulder, and he's he's telling you know his aides and, and bodyguards, hey, if we get in trouble, you don't worry about me. He said, you guys take care of yourself. I'll take care of me. And you know, it's just downreal. So, but anyway, outstanding. But you know, we uh, we spent a lot of time up on a marble mountain together um it just with the rotation and stuff so we we spent time there um you know so we'd have those little fights most nights uh, the bad guys trying to come up and get us the snipers would shoot at us just before dark there was one uh cave opening that was almost on our level uh, i don't know 50 meters away from us that if they worked their way up to that opening, they could shoot just about into us at night. Um, I've got videos of, of that cave, and you can see how the marble is just chipped off all around the opening of that cave where we were shooting at them at night, you know, when they're up in there and stuff. So um, we, we did a lot of stuff together, and it was a, a good relationship. So one of the one of the things you got in here in your notes is um, you guys did a mission RT Michigan, and you guys inserted into the into the Laotian uh, border with 101st Airborne. It sounded like a pretty good uh, trick, you know, kind of a. It was kind of a when when they told us what they wanted us to do. I thought this sounds like Ranger School. This is exactly a scenario in ranger school. What they tell you they wanted you to so, do? Uh, we, this was going to be a walk-in mission. So we would start on the Vietnam side of the border, and we would walk over into Laos to, <clears throat> to the area they wanted us to go to. Uh, and they wanted us to do that from a position where the 101st was currently located. So... Uh, there was a, a battalion from the 101st that was set up right on the border. And um, so they coordinated to have us, have our team put on steel pots, all that kind of stuff, get on the, the resupply helicopters, 
we came in with a resupply like we were, you know, new troops coming mm -hmm. uh, to be there when we jumped off. And and then they they put us in a inside the perimeter, but but in a section, and said, um, "Do you need to dig in?" You know, and all the little guys are looking around saying, "What? You need to dig a hole, foxhole, to get in a fighting position." And the, you know, the response: "We don't dig." So I, I told him, "Yeah, you need to dig." <laughs> I mean, we're out here with people that you only got you know bullets going everywhere. You need to dig in. So it's a good thing we did because. It got a little hairy, you know, that <laughs> night, and it was nice to be able to get down in a hole. Um, and and then I met with, with the company commander and platoon leaders and their forward observer, and uh, I gave them our plan. You know, here, here's what we're going to do. Uh, but what shocked them was I said, okay, uh, these coordinates, I want you to – Pre-plan that as an artillery target, and here's the name of it. And I want one here and here and here, and these are the names. All I'm going to do is call that name out, mm -hmm. you know, uh, target Roger. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you coordinates. Anything. you you got to have that already planned. And when I say Roger, I expect the artillery. I, I'd never had artillery before. Mm -hmm. So this was great. We were never in range of artillery, and all of a sudden I got it. I planned, yeah. I planned that stuff all over the place. Yeah. And so the what we did the next morning was, at first light we went down to the stream with the water resupply team. They'd go down and fill all the canteens and things up and, and bring them up. So we went down with them, dressed like the 101st, and when we got down there, you know, we changed into our Batman suits and <laughs> gave them the helmets and flat jackets and all that stuff. And they threw them in bags and carried them back up. And we just, you know, went on across the river and into uh, the jungle there on our mission. So hoping that the bad guys thought, you know, nobody had come in that way. Uh, so went out on our mission. There was, a, there was a hatchet force platoon that had been inserted, you know, much further out in, mm -hmm. in the valley. Um, but we, we went in and, I mean, it was, it was just you know, different and a cool way to do something. And then, you know, when we got in contact, man, when I, I call for those targets, they put it right on them. So that was a, a cool thing. Um, it was interesting that we had Bargewell and um, the one, two that was on the team with us. We had a little disagreement about our exact location mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm telling those two no i'm telling you we are right here and i said no you're 200 meters off i said there's no way so anyway we we in contact and i had told him i said you know if we're where i am or where i'm saying we are mm -hmm. there's a fork in the stream and there's a little footbridge going across one right out there about 150 meters in front of us is a road and there's a stream out there. I said, it, you know, I'll take you down there. But then we made contact and we had to come out on strings. So when they're lifting. Was that your it, first time coming out on strings? Uh, no. Oh, I, no. I'd been out before. Okay. So they're picking us up and they couldn't see me because they're in front of me, but I'm pointing <laughs> there. Down it there. Is. We're right there. You're right getting ready to said. get shot, but you're like, hey, I uh, was right. That's there right. It is. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
those are you know 10 digit grid coordinates and they were right on you know so when you were were you were you just using pace count and use the pace count and and terrain. terrain i yeah um you know i'd spent a lot of time in the woods growing up mm-hmm. so i and and particularly in the dark i love the dark i can i can feel the change in the terrain i know if i'm going uphill downhill if i'm on a little side whatever uh so i would take the section of the map that i thought we were going to operate in and i just memorize it did you guys have one to fifty thousand maps or were they one to twenty four? Yeah, they were. Well, we had both, but what we depending on the distance that we were going to go. Uh-huh. But I could just. I mean, usually we didn't go very far, you know. So you can memorize if you're used to doing that. The section of the map, I could mm-hmm. see it in my mind, you know, when we were moving. Um, knew where we were. I knew what the pace counts were. I knew what uh, the terrain should look like, you know, where we were. And I had checkpoints set up that. that you know, if we're here, we'll see this. If we're here, we'll see mm-hmm. this. And, you know, so I could track it, plus I used a pace count. Um, so I I knew where I was out there. And that was one thing that I, I thought was critical because eventually you're going to have to call yeah. for help and you need to be able to tell them where you are. And under triple canopy jungle, uh, you're not shooting asthmas to hilltops and no. things like that. I mean, you got to know where you are on the ground because you know the topology uh, what it feels like, what it looks like, and how far you've gone, and yeah, that was just the skill set that I had. No, no more important piece of information on the battlefield than where you are. Yeah. If you don't know where you are, it doesn't matter where the enemy is because you can't call for fire, you can't maneuver on them because you don't mm-hmm. know where you are. Yeah. When you guys were, um, were you guys just getting overwhelmed? Is that why you guys had to come yeah. out on strings on that one? Yeah. How big was the enemy force do you think that you rolled into? In your notes here, you said lots. <laughs> it says lots of NVA. <laughs> I, I typically use the term lots, meaning, you know, 100 or more. <laughs> so, How did you yeah. guys stumble across them? Where, uh, I'm sorry. Where did the contact come from? Like, what did that contact start like? It really started because headquarters decided they needed to resupply us because they wanted us to stay longer and i was saying no don't don't bring a helicopter out here and hover over our position don't do that yeah you got to get resupplied and they did it anyway and so you know once you have a chopper hovering above the canopy there dropping stuff down through it yes. It, it, the bad guys, I mean, they're all over the place anyway. They thought, oh, there must be somebody down there. If nothing else, they're going to go get whatever fell out of the helicopter. And they did. They came down there, and there we were. So uh, it kind of, you know, messed up the afternoon in terms of what we'd planned to do. You know, but, but we got out. Uh, but it's an extraction on strings through, you know, double canopy jungle. Uh, it's rough. Because you, you're being dragged through the limbs of the trees, through the treetops. The aircraft will always start to to go forward, and then you're being drugged through them. And well, they want to get the hell out of the line yeah, of fire, right? Yeah, because they're getting shot at. They don't want to stay there long. You're getting shot at, and it's hard for you to shoot because you're twisting and turning and hitting leaves. And you know now they're behind you, and, and it's hard to shoot that way. 
And, you know, they're only going to take um, maybe four people at a time out anyway. Mm-hmm. So that means you've got another chopper coming in. The bad guys know you're going out on strings now. And you got another aircraft coming in to pick up the rest of the team. You know, I'm the team leader. Yeah. I'm always first off, first one on the ground, mm-hmm. the last one on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm coming out with that last aircraft. I'm the last one, you know, to come up off the ground. And, you know, they've got you pretty well zeroed in by then, even though, you know, you're starting to work some gunships and stuff. But, uh, yeah, and the pilots don't like staying there. And then, uh, then they get over the. Uh, in this case, to get over the anti-aircraft fire, I mean, all of a sudden we're <laughs> seven thousand feet freezing AGL, yeah. you know, not sea level AGL, hanging on the end of a rope, covered in sweat, and uh, and freezing to death. And I'm looking up, you know, and I'm I'm swinging back and forth, so my rope is rubbing back and forth on the edge of the floor of the helicopter. Ugh. And I'm thinking, Ugh. we got a long ways to go, and it's starting to fray the rope up there. And, you know, are we going to get to a place they can set us down before that thing breaks or, or not? So that runs your arousal level up a little bit <laughs> and, you know, place your shivering. And then, you know, after about 30 minutes, your legs are asleep. You can't walk because it's cut the circulation off. So even when you get to wherever they're going to set you down, you can't stand up. They have to come out and get you and pick you up and put you in the helicopter. So It's another day at SOG, yeah, huh? another day at SOG. <laughs> uh, you did a snatch mission, you mentioned in, in these notes. You did a, a, a little, a little uh, you set up and set up the ambush, tried to capture someone. It doesn't seem like you, you mentioned a couple times you weren't very successful at capturing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, to get a, Is this how you got your second nickname? Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they don't cooperate, you know, sometimes they get terminated. So, um, so you know, in this one, I mean, we, we had rehearsed, we had practiced. Uh, and one of the techniques of the prisoner snatch is if you have a trail that people are going to move up and down in small groups, um, you practice setting up an ambush that has a, a dead spot in it. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the middle of the ambush, usually, um, no one's going to fire into that zone. The claymores are angled out so mm-hmm. that it creates a, a dead space there. Um, you put a big block of C4 there that you're going to designate or detonate. It's the same, you know, same time you set off the clay. Everything's going to go off at the same time and everybody's firing. And you know, the, what happens is whoever is lucky enough to be standing in that dead spot, um, (laughs) they get hit with a bullet, but the concussion from that C4 stuns them. And you know, we practice, so it stuns them. And then I've got a guy with me that's designated as Thumper. All right. So his, he and I are going, we're coming out of the bushes as soon as that stuff goes off. And Thumper's job is to see this guy standing there kind of dazed and just take him down. You're going to thump him in the head. And when he hits the ground, I'm going to hit him in the thigh with the morphine charrette. So I'm going to pump him full of morphine 
and then he'll do whatever we say. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, you know, he's just calm. And um, but in this case, we ended up killing yeah. that guy. How how many at this point you've done however many missions? Had you guys taken any casualties in your teams yet? Um, yes, uh, but I took most. I mean, a lot of people got hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have anybody killed on one of my teams until uh, I got to RT Virginia. Mm. And, you know, the point man was killed. A lot of people were wounded uh, right after I left Virginia. Um, on their next mission, they just got hammered and lost some people. The Americans got um, uh, shot up really bad, both critical, so they were through with SOG. Mm. So, but um, at this point, you've been, you, you're being continuing to be pretty lucky yeah it and it is i i people ask me all the time well you know how do you survive that stuff so you gotta be lucky i mean and you can call it luck you mm-hmm. can call it god you can call it whatever you want um but there's some kind of intervention that prevents you from getting hit you can't sit in a helicopter like that first one no. with that many bullets crisscrossing in there and not get hit you know and i like a fraction of a second between me being hit and the uh, you know mm-hmm. the other American being hit on those skids. I mean, I had just pushed back when that guy pulled the trigger, missed me, hit the other guy, mm-hmm. and that happened on a regular basis. Where you know, I when I go speak, a lot of times people if it has a this kind of flavor to it. Uh, if they say something about you know being in special forces or something, uh, it's not unusual for people to come up to me and say, "I really thought you'd be taller." <laughs> and I say, "If I'd been taller, I'd be dead. <laughs> I'm alive because I'm not taller. <laughs> My head has been creased so many times uh, that I just wouldn't be here." Yeah. So, uh, so then did you did Barswell took over? For for uh, RT Michigan, yeah. Eventually, we got to the point where um, I mean, Barswell was ready. He could have taken over before me, mm-hmm. but um, so we got to the point where I, I had to leave to go do something different. And, um, and I told him he's ready; mm-hmm. he, he can do this. He's a spec four, yeah, with all those assets, yeah. all that responsibility, and, and somewhere in there you got E five, I think. But yeah. yeah, but if you if you were to go back and look at SOG 1-0 across the board, you would be shocked at the age. Mm-hmm. They're so young. Um, but it, and it, as I've looked at, why would people do that? And it used to be that um, neurologists thought that your um, prefrontal cortex up mm-hmm. here where you make decisions, but it's also the part uh, that controls risk-taking. They used to say, yeah, it fully matures somewhere uh, around 18 to 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And now we know most people don't mature until about 28 to mm-hmm. 30 years old. 
So what's happening? Is that primarily men that don't uh, don't men uh, reach that it, level but, of maturity a little later? A little bit. The women are a little behind, but in in terms of the SOG leaders, uh, most of them had not definitely had not matured. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that they the person was immature. I'm just talking that part of the brain right. that controls risk taking. So you're young. You think you're bulletproof. Mm-hmm. You think you can do anything. You think you're going to live forever. Man, this is a cool thing to do. There's a SOG mission. So I think there's something there. I just haven't had time to explore it. Well, there's much. something there might be that the guys that are 30 years old are like, I'm not doing it. Like That's the right. guy that told you don't volunteer for SOG. Yeah. Because they're yeah. saying, yeah, the survivability is not high. I've got to, gonna, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. But the young kids are out there. all yeah. in. Yeah. How old was Bargewell? How old were you at this point? Bargewell, Bargewell, I was about four or five months older than Bargewell. And how old were you? Mm, when Bargewell came along. This I is 1969. Might, uh, um, so you're 22. 22. You're born just, yeah. I, <sighs> I had just become 22, which I didn't think I would make. And I thought for sure I won't see 20, 23. Um because I mean, we obviously skipped over a lot of yeah stuff here. We uh, used a lot of cat lives up. So, um, but yeah, I mean, we we were just a few months apart in terms of age. Well, every single one of these operations, just about, you're going to use a certain number of yes. cat lives. Yes. Did you ever go on an operation where you didn't get contacted by the enemy? No. If you if you count the gas. Mm-hmm. Then no, we made contact. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, you're yeah. going to get into contact with the enemy. All right, what was Operation Shiloh all about? And is this where you, is this why you left RT Michigan? Yeah. Okay. So you get uh, called away from RT Michigan. They need somebody to do Operation Shiloh. What was that all about? They, Mac Sog and somebody higher up. Um, decided that they needed to stop the influx of supplies and and troops uh, coming down from the north and there was a, a place called the Mugia Pass big deep valley but there was a, a point where it really narrowed up and the banks were really steep and high um, and you know so it they had to funnel through that pass with their trucks and people and whatever to come on down uh, into the south. And, you know, you send a, a forward air controller out the air. I mean, they see it. So they, they pull off and they hide because they know that forward air controller has a bunch of F-4s mm-hmm. over here in orbit just waiting on him to find a target, and they're going to come in. So they somebody came up with the idea of what if we put a team out there up on the, the ridge, mm-hmm. up on the uh, the the crest of that valley looking down and and they'll be able to see far enough that when they're coming they can call and say okay they're on their way scramble you know get the l4 out here mm-hmm. uh, and the l4 can be on them like a chicken on a gene bird and just eat them up you know um so they decided let's do this mission we'll sneak people sneak a team out there put them on the ridge let them set up there and, and just interdict this place like crazy. Um, but it has to be a super team, has to be officer-led, um, 
has to the all Americans have to be approved by by name by the president to do this because of where it is and what they're going to do. Um, so they they needed somebody a one zero officer who could take over a team uh, that we had there and you know lead it and they put me on it. I wasn't happy about leaving Michigan, but I thought, well, this sounds cool uh, until I learned more about what they were going to do. Um, and I went on a visual recon. I went out and rode with a forward air controller while he was putting in uh, airstrikes with, with F-4s. And I'm looking at this place, and I'm thinking, there's got to be somebody up here. Yeah, they're, it's, they're it's not the high ground. They're not leaving this place undefended. Yeah. And when I brought that up, they said, no, there's nobody there. They, we never receive any fire from that area. And I said, if you don't want pe- people to know you're there, you don't shoot at them. So there's some, I'm sure there's somebody there. And anyway, so I, I had some disagreements with the people down in Saigon about that. I had to go back and forth on a lot of briefings about the mission. And we took the other team, or I took the team, and we trained, and we'd go to Monkey Mountain, and we'd practice all this stuff and our surveillance techniques, and we had starlight scopes. We had long-range lenses on our cameras and Mm -hmm. all the -the state-of-the-art binoculars. We had a plan that said, and I thought it was funny, that we're going to drop parachutes out in an area over away from there with blocks of ice in them. So the parachutes will open, mm-hmm. descend, hang in the trees, the ice will melt. So when the when the NVA go over there, you know, they'll think we parachuted some people in and they've mm-hmm. moved out. Got it. Because they won't see anybody. You know I'm saying they're not stupid. Anyway. Um, so for four weeks we get ready to go do this thing and then finally somebody listened and said, No, call it off. We're not going to do it. And Tilt talked to you in one of your podcasts about where he had this special mission that he had to have an officer with him. Yeah. Later on, after I left, it came back up again. They decided (laughs) to do it, and they put an officer with his team and said, you guys are going to do it. And they were out on the helipad with the rotors turning when the mission got called off because they discovered there were a bunch of people there. And if they had put either one of those teams in, yeah, we'd have lost right off the bat. How about uh, Dick Meadows? Uh, <laughs> now, now, legend. Now, this is all, he's a legend <laughs> at this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody already knew Dick Meadows. Um, it, Meadows had been, he got to the point where um, he'd done all his super secret stuff, and they said, okay. We're going to give you a choice. You can, we can promote you to sergeant major, or we can promote you to captain. Which one do you want? And he he worked out a deal that said if you promote me to captain, then I get to stay. You can't you can't force me out. I get to stay in until I can retire, you know, as an officer at whatever yeah. rank I I get to. Yeah. So anyway, so he shows the, the, this is. I don't know if this is the army or if it's just Vietnam. I think it's a little bit of both. 
that kind of thing just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Where they take a guy like that and go, hey, we're going to either promote you to the senior enlisted side or make you a captain. Which one do you want? Yeah. That's epic. Yeah. And Meadows was an epic guy. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, I, I came back uh, from a mission and I was told that we got a new company commander and he wants to see you as soon as you get cleaned up. So I, I got in to see him that night. It was probably 2200. And actually, he was, the quarters were, it was a Quonset hut with a wall. Mm-hmm. I was on one side of it, he was on the other side. Mm-hmm. So I go over and report to him and, you know, he told me good job and all this stuff. I've been looking at your record and he said, effective right now, uh, you're the recon company XO. Said, but I don't want to give up a team. And he said, you can keep a team. I don't care about that. Uh, but you're the XO, and you're going to help me. And he mm-hmm. said, to start with, tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to have a meeting with all the Americans in Recon Company, one at a time, because I've been going through the records, and I think the some of them's beret has gotten a little too heavy for them. Mm. And we're going to send them back to the train tomorrow. They don't need to be in SOG. They can go play with special forces, but they're not going to be in SOG. Uh, What do you mean? He said, there are people here who are not going out on missions very often uh, and going out on missions. And every time they get shot off the LZ, Mm -hmm. they never actually complete a mission. so, you know, those people need to go somewhere else, and we need to replace them. And, and Meadows is a hard dude. Mm-hmm. I'm hard. And you can tell when he's talking to you, he is as serious as a heart attack. So he said, here, take this stack of files with you. Go through them tonight, tomorrow morning at 0700. You know, they're going to start coming in, you know, the recon orderly room, and I'm going to have a talk. You and I are going to have a talk with them. So you tell me which ones you think need to go home. Mm. So we met in there the next morning, and, and you know I'm looking at the list that he's uh, the stack he's got there that he plans to send back. I said we're not going to have anybody left, and he said I don't care. If we have to, you and I will lead all the missions. You know, and my heart's not beating at this point. Because I'm hearing how serious he is in his voice. Mm-hmm. And he said, we'll do them all. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, we, we're going to be kind of busy. But anyway, he, he, he wasn't going to send them all home. But he, he sent a lot of people back to the train that day. Mm-hmm. Put them, he, t- he just told them, you, uh, helicopter's leaving this afternoon. Be on it. And he started shuttling people back down there. You know, if you had been, you know, dragging your feet, finding ways not to go on missions, you were sick, you were, mm-hmm. you were whatever, and you, know, you get shot off the LZ. I mean, he looked at, you know, over the period of time you had been there, how many missions had you been on? How many times have you been in contact? How many days have you been on the ground? And all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he had his own little equation, and, you know, these people needed to find something else to do. I mean, he was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, big time ranger, uh, special ops mindset. 
And he started looking around right away. There's some things here we got to clean up. We should have an isolation area. Mm-hmm. When a team gets a mission, you go into isolation. That's the way it's done, Special Forces. Mm-hmm. That's the doctrine, and we're not doing it. Why would we not do that here? Uh, a lot of things like that. Training. Um, in fact, you know, he told me, listen, the next morning, he said, you meet me down on the beach the next, you know, tomorrow morning. The beach was just right outside the Constantina. Mm-hmm. So I met him down there, and he said, we're going to go for a little run. And, you know, he's considerably older than me mm-hmm. at that point. So we take off down the beach at about a seven-minute pace. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I haven't been running. I mean, I'm starting to, you know, suck a little wind here, and this joker's not slowing down. So when we get about the two-mile point, you know, I, I told him, I said, sir, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and turn around here and go back and take care of some things. You do that, Lieutenant. I'm going to keep running. And he kept going, and I'd look back every once in a while till he disappeared out of sight down the beach, and he's by himself, and he's unarmed. And, you know, later on, he came back. <laughs> I mean, physical fitness was a, a big thing for him. Uh, you keep your body sharp, you'll keep your mind sharp. And, you know, we started having PT in the mornings mm-hmm. for the teams that were not out in the field things like that, so he made a lot of changes. How did that affect the uh, attitude around the camp? Well, after, after his house cleaning at the, at the beginning, everybody else says, yes sir, whatever you want. I mean, we need to do this stuff and we need to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he was out there, I mean, and everybody knew. I mean, he's a guy that would say, uh, you've been out twice to get a prisoner. I'm going with you this time and show you how to get one. <laughs> and he'd go out and get one and bring it back. I mean, whatever the mission was, he could do it. And and then say, now I want the rest of you to do it that way. And holy cow. Roger that. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you say. So um, he said, you can keep a team, but here's how we're going to start. We've got a group coming over. The first group in Okinawa were sending people over, temporary duty. They'd send four teams of Americans over. And he said, uh, I want you to train them. So when they get here, you get with them and their teams, and you put them through some training on how to run these operations and what to do. And then I want you to go out with them, uh, with each team. You take them out. You walk right alongside you know, the one zero. I guess we call that skin in the game. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to trade them, and then you're going to go with them. Yeah. And, you know, when you get a, a, a team that you think is ready to go, you tell me. We'll sign a mission to them, and you take the next team. Well, are so, these the snake bite teams? Is that yeah, what these are called? Yeah, Got snake it. Bite. So, you know, I was going out on a regular basis with, with these guys, you know, particularly once I got them trained. And, you know, we were going into um, the Marine – forced recons area of operations you know they would put their teams out there within two or three days you know they'd get run out we were going out and we're the objective was to stay seven days <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me we you know we'd eventually make contact sometimes we'd make contact before that but it mm-hmm. was a live fire you know shoot back target kind of um certification so can you lead a team out against real bad guys 
uh, and and get shot at and do it right, and then I give them the check mark. They then they get a SOG mission. And so those are the it. Elephant Valley <laughs> operations. Yeah, is that what those are? So you right. had an AO that was a little bit calmer. It was a little bit closer. We still had some real bad guys. This is just like the ultimate in training operations because yeah. it's actually real. Yeah, because the targets <laughs> shoot back. I mean, and we had several of them wounded, you know, from going out on those missions. Uh, but, you know, they, they always did a great job. I mean, mm-hmm. when they were there, they did a great job. So um, he kept me busy with that. But So I was technically still going out uh, with teams. I wasn't happy, but I said, I won't real SOG missions, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know. And those did, like did those this. even count as your no, SOG missions? No, no, those are just, those are just day-to-day stuff, you know, you go do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, try not to get killed while you're doing it, but yeah, you, you just go do that. And, uh, you know, ironically enough, that was very similar to what it was like, you know, when I came home and went to the ranger department and became a ranger instructor, that's what I did. I was walking along, mm-hmm. you know, with a team of ranger students, grading and evaluating uh, the patrol leaders. So, except the targets didn't shoot back. Mm-hmm. But so that's uh, a that's a little bit of a difference. Yeah. <laughs> and then when did you take over RT Virginia? Was that your next? Was that your next uh, one zero? Yeah. We finished with the snake bites, and uh, he said, "Okay, yep." one more mission for you before you get your real team back again and he said we've got a team uh, that we want to convert over to a vietnamese led team so it's mm-hmm. going to be a team that's going to operate with no americans on it mm-hmm. we've got um, a vietnamese army captain that's coming in here so he'll be the team leader and we've got rt virginia who has n- nobody right now. Um, so I want you to train them with him, and then you can you know, take him out on a mission and make sure he does okay. And if he does okay, then you know, he will take over the team and he'll, they'll start getting you know, SOG missions. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I got with the team, they were saying no, no. We we don't want a Vietnamese captain, hmm. and I don't know. There was just something about them. We bonded very quickly, mm-hmm. and then they started saying, "We want you." I said, "It can't be me. It's got to be this guy." So mm-hmm. we're going to go train, and and uh, they were good, and I liked them. We got along well, um, but they did not like the, the captain. So in the end, Meadows said, "Okay, you take the team." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you spend all this time with them, you take them and, and go with them. And then what were those missions? Then you started doing SOG, SOG missions SOG with them? missions, yeah, because they were good. And how many times did you go out with uh, with uh, RT Virginia? Uh, a bunch. I, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and count them now, but, yeah. I mean, that was the last team, you know, that I was 1-0 of. And so these missions are the same, you know, you're going deep in yeah, enemy territory. Yeah across the fence, as Tilt says, inserting and trying to do recon, trying to find intelligence, trying to plant sensors, and trying to avoid hundreds, if not thousands, yeah. of and, and NVA. S- and sometimes 
sometimes you went out looking for a large unit. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the mission. You go find them, and once you find them, now you've got them located. Yep. You bring the world. I mean, you introduce them to you know what we call later chalk and all. I mean, you bring all this stuff on because they can't get away once mm-hmm. you know where they are. So those some of those were just straight up patrol to contact. You're yep. going to go in there and you're going to patrol until you, you find go, some enemy and then you're going to call the funder. You go do that. Um, and I think we, we I had an in-country mission with Virginia, but I think the first out-of-country was what we sometimes call a suicide mission. We put in two teams. Mm-hmm. Once we got on the ground, we'd separate. For you to be calling it a suicide <laughs> mission is a real statement about things. <laughs> so, so, so we would separate. This should be called the guaranteed death mission, but okay, we'll go with it, suicide mission. And, and one team would be the, the real team that was gonna stay out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the suicide team uh, would be the one that was gonna go make contact as soon as possible. Go find them, pounce on them, you know, do as much damage as you could, bring in the world, get extracted, and go away. But the other team's still out there, and nobody knows that they're out there now. They think, mm-hmm. you know, that was who got extracted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was go get So we we went out, and, you know, sure enough, it didn't take us long to, to find, you know, a, a platoon or, or so of people. And... You know, so we were online and we opened fire on them. I mean, we would normally just start out like that, but I could see them and, you know, and I started shooting at them, you know, and they started shooting back. And it was funny that what happened, we were online, and as soon as all, all the the bullets started coming back, it was, swoom. they were all right here with me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you doing? And I said, spread out. Mm-hmm. You can't be here with me. I mean, you know, one B-40 take us all out. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, so I had to smoke them a little bit and talk, spread back out. Yeah. Dispersion then, is what we yeah, call yeah. that. And we'd also say don't bunch up. Yeah. And I would think yeah. about the psychology of what makes people bunch up like that. And part of it, I think, is just fear. And, like, you want to be next to someone else. You want to have your buddy. Yeah. And so as soon as the bullets start flying, it's like I'm going to go get next <laughs> to you because – We'll be together, and I feel better when we're together. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think is just communication. People want to hear what's happening. People want to know what's happening, and so they figure, well, the boss is right there. I'll go get with the boss, then I'll know what's happening. And then that's what the everyone else on the team thinks. And next yeah. thing you know, you, you're, yeah. you're too close. Yeah, you, you can't do that. They knew I had the radio. So yeah, were so. you the suicide team? Were you the assault team? And then someone else yeah, was we going to stay the, out there we longer. Were the suicide team. You know, so we we hammered that group, which grew once we started hitting them. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, then we just kept bringing in enough air power to eventually we suppressed it enough that you know we could get extracted. Um, but so that was, but we'd already um, we had been in contact bef- once before the in country mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean I, I, that was a little issue, but we got that resolved. You know, maintaining the dispersion and following whatever their immediate action drill was. But um, they were a good team. I mean, they, they reacted normally very well under fire. And were those, were those uh, Vietnamese? Those were Vietnamese? Yeah. So with that, you wrap up with RT Virginia, and you get some R&R, and you actually have a document that you gave me about about this R&R, and R&R, if you don't know, is rest and recuperation. And we're actually gonna cover that on the next podcast.
So thanks for coming on. And we'll peep, we'll fill these people in on this insane operation <laughs> that is titled Rest and Recuperation. So thanks for coming out. Thank you for having me. And we'll Enjoyed talk to you it. on the next one. Okay. Thank you. And with that, Mr. Dick Thompson has left the building. And once again, it is an honor to be able to sit down with such incredible men and to have the opportunity to hear and to preserve their stories and their lessons. And it's actually crazy for me to be sitting here and and to have this opportunity and to be able to share it with anybody that wants to hear it, anybody that wants to learn. So I am very thankful for this opportunity. And one of the things that allows us to do what we're doing here is you. Because by listening, you can take these lessons and apply them to your life and make yourself better. And if you want to help us while you make yourself better, that seems like it would be a good thing to me. Agree. We could, you can help us help you. Help us help you. Do you know what movie that's from? Yes, I do. What? So you feel like you know no, where it's from. I do. I just recalled it. All right. Lay it on me. Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Doesn't seem like the type of movie that you'd watch. Well, yeah. I guess it doesn't really seem like, but maybe it was just a movie that was so popular mm-hmm. that at some point yeah, I watched yeah. it. Got in the, on the grid. Gotcha. Cool. Well, help me help you help me help you. That's how he mm-hmm. said it. A little bit more dramatic. Nonetheless, <laughs> Yes. Help yourself. That's kind of the real deal, right? So mm-hmm. what are we doing to help ourselves? Jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Anti-stress activity. I was Good in point. the locker room. Good point. Not necessarily changing in the locker room, but I was talking to mm. one of my many friends in the locker room. And when you think about it, jujitsu is like the most efficient. Well, I don't know if efficient is the word, but it's like it's exercise, competition, friendly, and how should I say, uh, what do you call it? Um, aggressive aggressive but like what's like beneficial competition you know how there's like unhealthy health we'll just say healthy, healthy competition, competition exercise healthy competition um uh so there's social element to it mm-hmm. these are all things that you get out of it um therapy physical and mental by <laughs> the way uh and stress relief stress relief which we didn't really hit it on this initial podcast but uh, Dr. Henry Thompson, also known as Dick Thompson, who we just spent time with, his book is called The Stress Effect, and it talks about stress. And I concur that jiu-jitsu is a stress reliever, yep. big time. Yeah. It's kind of like um, like you get small levels of stress in jiu-jitsu to the point where it doesn't feel like stress, but mm-hmm. technically it's stress. Just like exercise, you know, like there's stress in your muscle. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah. So that's I think that's sort of how it works mentally, Mm -hmm. physically, you know, a little bit of stress on there. And then, boom, the result of that stress is no stress. 
Yeah. That's the way it goes. Anyway, when we're doing jujitsu, what do we need? Geese and rash guards. That's the uniform, for lack of a better term. What kind of geese are we getting? 100% origin 100% origin geese, 100%. <laughs> yeah, making the best geese. In the world, yeah, factually made in America. In America, yeah, from American, from American ingredients. Ingredients, the masterpiece that is the ghee. Yeah, yeah, everything else too. Also, you know, shirts and, and jackets and joggers, jeans. I saw you in jeans for the first time. I think ever. When? I don't know. It was like we were going somewhere. Yeah. Oh yeah, Washington. We were yeah. Washington. We were both representing. Representing big time. Yeah, I look good. I felt like I look good. Um, I wasn't I, I'm judging gonna, you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to ask you your opinion on, on that matter. Uh, nonetheless, yes, I was representing big time um, with my American jeans. American denim. Yeah. From dirt to the shirt, as they say. <laughs> nonetheless, jeans, joggers, supplements, yeah. joint warfare. I'm back on discipline. That's like two weeks already. Thankful. Like. Pff, you know, day, you know what you you know how you sometimes you slip off for whatever reason you run out whatever yeah. subscription yeah I'm not you can get a subscription yeah so you can get a subscription that way you don't run out you can go on to originmain.com and you can subscribe so that every whatever monthly you get your you get your resupply yeah and that way you don't fall off the train yeah and, there's a and you save money too it's cheaper. Oh, dang, okay. So a little discount. Yeah, and that's like, uh, um, there's certain things in life that are like that where, like, you eat them or use them or whatever, like, every day. And to go on, especially if they save money, to go on those little subscriptions, it's just, it's a, that'll improve your efficiency in your uh, life. One less thing you have to think about. Oh, yeah. And it just comes. And And you don't don't get that disparaging. No, it's just not disparaging. It's just despair. Yeah, that despair, that think, moment. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's gonna be three days. Yep. Even if I fed exit, yep. they got to get the order. Yeah. Man. No, subscribe. Exactly right. <laughs> so, what supplements? Joint warfare, krill oil. These are for your joints and general health. Really, curcumin. That's general health, right there. Mm, yeah. Also, discipline and discipline go. Finally, I got the Dak Doc. Dak, Dak Savage. Dak Savage. <laughs> that's Dakota Myers. Signature. <laughs> signature signature drink signature drink uh i like it it's compa- I, I haven't done a side-by-side comparison mm-hmm. you know as far as like which one i prefer but it i won't be surprised if that is my favorite one. Oh, your new favorite yes because your old favorite was tropic thunder tropic thunder yes yeah. the lemon lime was kind of too basic to be my favorite it's still fine still great yeah. That's no. weird because the basic one that you're over there disparaging. No, 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 no. I'm not lemon lime is my favorite right. at well, this yeah. time. Well, you're a simple person. You know, I get it in a good way. My wife kind of curiously asked me. She was like, "How many of these can I drink a day?" Because it turns out my wife mm-hmm. is really into the <laughs> discipline go. Yeah. So I'm she's drink. Yeah. So, anyways. I'm thinking four cans is around the limit per day that yeah. you want to be drinking. I've done three and I'm great. Yeah. No, you know how like because like if you drink even like a coffee scenario where you you get to a point where you drink too many coffees and you're like eh, I don't feel good anymore. Yeah. I feel weird or off or what fidgety. You know all mm. these little symptoms. You know I've never actually taken a complete sip of coffee in my whole life. No sh- yeah. kidding. Yeah. Dang. I don't like the smell of it. Which means I don't like, I don't even have, people go, well, haven't you ever tasted it? And I'm like, well, I am I suppose at some point I'm guessing I put a little sip into my mouth, 
But even the smell alone, I smelled it. I was like, yeah, I don't like this. Yeah. What about um, coffee, like flavored stuff? Like don't ice don't cream. like it. Don't like coffee ice cream. But have you I'll tried like, it though? Yes. Okay. But even then, you know, sometimes there'll be some kind of special treat. <laughs> sure. You know, like some kind of a, I, wait, does tiramisu, you know what tiramisu is? Doesn't that kind have some of. coffee flavor in it? I don't know. Okay. Well, it seems to to me. But and you don't like old, it? No, no, that's the only one. Tiramisu. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's right. one dessert that's, it's sort of like, takes some skill to make. Sure. And if it's on the menu at a really nice restaurant, Sometimes I'll have a little scenario happen where I, where I get my tiramisu on. Partially, and this is sort of a rationalization, partially because, well, what I tell myself is like, well, you know, I, I kind of need to see what it tastes like because there's there's some tiramisu. One of the best things I've ever tasted in my life was tiramisu. It was in okay. Canada at this little, Jeremy Stevens just got done cutting weight. We went to this, um, <laughs> we went sure. to the, yeah, we weighed in. And we went to this Italian place, homemade Italian place, and the guy, he fed us so much food, it was just, I was sick how much food we ate. And then he goes, I'm making you my tiramisu. And I said, no, no, I'm not. He goes, I'm making it for you. You know, I'm just, I'm gonna do it. You just be quiet. So it took like 40 minutes. He like made it. He brings it out. You know, you know, once you've eaten a lot, you still think you can eat more, but then after like 15 minutes, you're like, no, I cannot yeah, yeah, eat yeah, more. It's, it's so, so it was yeah. like 40 minutes. So yeah. now I'm just thinking to myself, I cannot eat anymore. Yeah. He brings out this tiramisu and he's like, mm. and he, I forget what kind of accent he had, but he had an <laughs> accent. It was either French or Italian. I think it was French, but you know, he just yeah. put it in front of me yeah. and I ate, I took a bite and it was the, it was definitely one of the best things I've ever had. Dang. That's saying a lot. Because it's one thing oh, if yeah. like you're hungry and the first time you had it, oh, it kind of has that impression and it imprinted yeah. in your brain. But you're like basically the worst conditions to yeah. have to that have experience. That be, be so good. Oh yeah, dang. Because everything else was good too. So, right. anyways, maybe I need to, need to make a tiramisu mulk if that's if that's even a thing. But wait, what is t- is there a tiramisu like a flavor? I don't know, to it? man. I gotta do research. Coffee. I know. I gotta do research. Yeah, yeah. Do, re- do see, research. you know what that means? Gotta eat some more tiramisu. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Gotta do some market. Yeah. So speaking of mulk, you can get mulk. That's protein. It's another dessert, which is as good as tiramisu. Sure. It's as good as 94% of tiramisus. Because there's only 6% of tiramisus that are mind-blowing. The rest of them, you know, they're okay. Is it because of the coffee? I have no idea. Maybe. I don't even, I don't have any idea what's in tiramisu. I don't even know what it is, but it tastes good it's in cute. 6% situations. Yeah. Mulk, 100%, 100% tastes good. How's this? Last night, speaking of mulk. I ran out of milk. So do I just be a savage and put water in it? Because it wasn't that serious. Keep in mind, and this is literally true. I had I was eating steak, rice, broccoli, and that was sort of it. Yeah. What to you drink or whatever. Something. Yeah, I need, need a, a little, little something, little right? Hitter. So I figure list. But the, here's the thing. When you're eating steak, rice, broccoli, you don't need additional protein necessarily. Unless mm. the steak is small. I get it. But at that moment, you don't yeah. necessarily need it. I just wanted it. But I'm out of milk. So you see my conundrum, right? Yeah. Is it kind of not worth it kind of situation? But I found some, you know, the one in the can, evaporated milk. Uh-huh. You know that thing? Mm-hmm. You ever tasted that yeah, before? Yeah, 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 yeah. Bro, it doesn't taste good. Yeah. It tastes pretty whack, actually. But you put it in the milk, <laughs> it makes it, like, more creamy. <laughs> oh, it was good. It was surprisingly so go. good. Yeah, so there it was go. like a it was like a <laughs> same deal, the dessert, a little bit extra creamy. I put some peanut butter in it, too. Uh, it was a dark chocolate one. Yeah. So, yes, milk, you are correct 100%. Uh, B. Little, I was talking to B. Little the other day, and uh, I said, you know, I've only actually had the darkness milk a couple times. You have? Yes. 
And he said, you gotta try it again. It's really good. Yeah. And so I went home and I was like, okay, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have the, dark, the darkness. It's good. Oh yeah, man, that's, the, my main, that's my main jam right now. Oh the really? darkness, yeah. Yeah, so all, I've kind of disparaged that flavor a bit of really? milk. Okay. I've been like, well, you know, everything else is so great and yeah, then yeah. there's chocolate, the darkness. Yeah. Now I'm sort of thinking I underestimated the quality and the taste yeah. of the darkness. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you get milk. You can also get strawberry milk and chocolate milk for your kids, warrior kid milk, so that they're healthy. For the strawberry one, I'm not saying do this, mm-hmm. but do this. <laughs> Just try it. How about this? Just try it. Add a half a banana in it. Okay. Just do that. My, Report back. Did I tell you my daughter the other day? She sent me, she's in college, and she sent me a Snapchat. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's, you're on you know, Snapchat. Get, All good, dude. Yeah, well, yeah, with, man. that's that's closed uh, scenario with the fam. Right? Oh, closed circle. I got you. And <laughs> anyways, because she's a 18-year-old girl, sure. she sent me a snap of her, <laughs> of, sure. her Hell yeah. of, of her shake, mm-hmm. and it said, it said you could you could just know exactly what it said. It said literally a peanut butter chocolate milkshake. <laughs> that was the 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 text written. Oh yeah, Literally. and then she called me because I don't really check Snap that often. Mm-hmm, of course and not. I don't think I've got it live for notifications. Mm-hmm. But then she said, you know, she sent me a text. Check your Snap. And I said, why? What is everything okay? You know? Mm, She's yeah. like, I literally just made the best. It's literally a so anyways. <laughs> I think it's complete hilarity. Not ninety nine percent, hundred percent hilarity how witnessing secondhand, by the way, you navigate your way through the current trends of eighteen year old Snapchat lingo scenarios. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to yeah. me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, by the way. <laughs> also, Jocko White tea. Yes. Let's not forget about the Jocko White tea. So good. You know, you, once you kind of deadlift all that weight or whatever, you, we tend to forget where, you know, how you got there. Yeah. So let's just not forget that. Yeah. And plus, winter is here, kind of. Sure. So, kind of fall Yeah, fallish. But what that means is warm drinks. Mm-hmm. There's one, well, there's two drinks to drink warm. Mulk warm. Sure. Like chocolate milk warm. The Warrior Kid milk warm. is better warm. Interesting. Yeah, and I did that experiment. It was a while ago, right when the Warrior Kid came out. It's better warm. Or you can drink Jocko White tea. Warm. Right. It's good. If you haven't been already. Yeah. 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 Yes, yeah, sure. so you can get all these amazing. I shouldn't say amazing. Mm. Amazing That's is right. one of those words that it like it started off as a joke because people would say, "Oh my gosh, amazing!" But like, bro, you're not amazed by this. Just say good or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, that was a joke, so I'd say it as a joke, mocking everyone. But now you're serious. Yeah, you know how it rolls into your normal lingo after oh, a while. Oh yeah, yeah. it did that. Anyway, these items to keep you on the path, help yourself, help others, all that. OriginMain.com. Mm-hmm. That's where you get them. Also. Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. So you go to JockoStore.com. What can you get there? Rash guards. Rash guards. This is like representative of the path. You're on the path. You represent on the path. The kind of like if people know, if you listen and you know, you see somebody representing in the <laughs> wild, but you know they're on the path 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even at the gym, I'll see people. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people wearing the rack guard here at our gym. Yes, sir, there is. MMA 
and oh, fitness. Oh yeah, and to me that tells me hundred percent like that person's on the path. You know when uh, when I see somebody that's wearing, you know, that's representing. Big time. I just give them a, like a little head. Nod. A little something, <laughs> yes, sir. Me too. Yeah, because and it's not it's not acknowledgement. It's unification, right? Yes. It's like, I'm with you. Yep. We're together. Oh, yeah. We're in this fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel it too, man. And I think that's a common thing, you know? Like, I'm sure Pete could tell you too, like, if he was at the post office or wherever, and he sees, like, somebody with, the, you know, the, some origin boots on oh, or something yeah. like this, he'd just kind of look at him, look at the boots, and be like, yep. you know? Yeah, man. Yep. 100%. If you listen, yeah, you know, T-shirts, truckers' hats, beanies, hoodies, what else? Good stuff. Yep. Decals on there. We replaced some stuff. Yeah, it's just go chocolatestore.com if you like something. Hey man, get something. Represent. Good spot. Yeah. Don't forget about this podcast if you want to listen to it and when you want to know when it comes out, then you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts, which is a good call because Echo doesn't think you've subscribed to it yet. I factually don't think that. Okay. There you go. I think I, th- so I agree with you. So we don't need to say it anymore. No. Uh, well, you know, there you I, go, I think you it's don't a think co- people subscribe. <laughs> no, it's a cool reminder. Trapped. You just it's got trapped. Cool, <laughs> it's a cool reminder <laughs> for sure. Yes, wherever you listen to podcasts, yes, subscribe if you would, if you want, fully. Also, speaking of subscribing, there's another podcast that people seem to like mm. called Grounded. Keeps you grounded. Kind of jujitsu uh, uh, a theme. It's not, it's not really a jiu-jitsu thing. It kind of is. Mm. It's just more, what, exploring certain elements of life in a little bit more loose way. I guess, yeah, that's a good way of talking about it. Yeah. It's but, just kind of a little bit more mellower version of the Jocko yeah. podcast. That yes. We can just kind of talk about stuff. But when you <laughs> listen to it, like, um, you, you it kind of feels like, the feeling, right? Because you have a certain experience when you listen to, to podcast. It, the feeling you get, because I, I listen to it. Be- I don't get feelings, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we get feeling. It's kind of like, okay, a conversation is going on about a certain thing, and you kind of want to chime in more. Like, that's how I feel, you know, uh, like like when I listen to it. It's like a conversation is going on kind of with you is what it feels like. I don't know. That's, that was my one of my prelim experiences with it. Nonetheless, called Grounded Podcasts. Same deal on uh you know iTunes Google Play all that stuff. Also the Warrior Kid podcast. Mm-hmm. Don't forget about that one yep. for the young ones. And don't for forget about that one. Ones. I, and we have two in the bank. I got one more to prep, and we'll get another three Warrior Kid podcasts out there. So working it, and then don't forget about the Warrior Kid soap from IrishOaksRanch.com. If you're going to support a Warrior Kid, it's a good way to do it. He's running a business at age 13. No big deal. Yeah, with legitimate products, yes, by the way. Because it's one thing, again, I said this before, like, you know how your friend or your neighbor, whoever, they give you the soap wrapped in the little decorative plastics and ribbons? Mm. You know that soap? Not really, but continue. Uh, well, they'll do it from time to time. <laughs> and they're like, hey, here's your gift item, you know, soap. It's like, cool. That's a hint. But <laughs> you would think, but it's not real soap. It's real soap, technically, but like you use it and you're like, bro, this isn't for use. This is like a decorative piece Got it. you put on the sink, on the side good. or something like that. 
like that's what it is. It's but like this one shaped like a claymore mine or something. Yeah. Kind of get the game. <laughs> Should be. Usually it's shaped like a turtle shell or like a you know raindrop. Mm. I don't know. Abrams tank. Typically no. <laughs> Nonetheless, just <coughs> Jocko Jocko soap. The one that Aiden makes is like good. It's you. It's soap soap. Like you use it. You're supposed to use it. It's not actually. a wall hanger. It's not a wall hanger. It's not a decorative piece. Got it. It's functional, as you said. It'll help you stay clean. Boom. Also, YouTube channel, if you're interested in the video version of this podcast. you want to, If you have a smart TV, like hanging in your wall, in your gym, in your, or in your house, whatever, your office, whatever, you want to play this podcast, boom, put on the YouTube version. I say that because I hear that people are doing that. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? I've seen videos of people doing that. Me too. Which is pretty cool. And plus, you can see Echo's videos that he... Well, it's up for debate whether he goes overboard or not. I think some that's clearly that it has gone <laughs> overboard. I, th- I think they're like, like, what do you call? Borderline? Pushing the envelope? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I see the perfect amount of modulation uh, with fire explosions, sound effects. <laughs> um, and cello. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, check that out. We also got psychological warfare. If you need a little mental support. That's me giving it to you through your MP3 platform. Then there's flipsidecanvas.com. This is visual support run by my brother, Dakota Meyer, who's making graphic art representation of the path. Cool stuff. Check that out, flipsidecanvas.com. Okay, we got some books. Number one, The Stress Effect. Look, we got two more podcasts with Dick Thompson. He wrote a book. We'll cover it in the third podcast, but it's called The Stress Effect. If you want to get ahead, you can order it now. We've got it listed on the website. Why smart leaders make dumb decisions and what to do about it. The Stress Effect. So check that out. Of course, we also have Leadership Strategy and Tactics, which is my new book coming out January 14th. I was flipping through the index, it's a heavily indexed book so that you can quickly find what you're looking for, but it's pretty cool when you, when you are looking through the index. Here's some, here's some things, communication with bosses, forms of, complaints, complex problems, compromise, condescension, confidence, construction sites, contingency planning, counseling, countenance it's got some it's got some very interesting topics all about leadership check that one out then of course there are the warrior kid books one two and three to get kids on the path we got mikey and the dragons for the littler kid teach that kid to overcome fear we have the discipline equals freedom field manual the first field manual about how to be on the path if you want to know about workouts there's a bunch of workouts in there for you if you want to know about martial arts, there's a bunch about martial arts in there. If you want to know about food, it's in there. Sleep, it's in there. All that stuff's in there. And then there is the thoughts from me. And and then there's Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership. These are the two leadership books that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. And if you need help with your leadership, you can check those out. There's also Echelon Front. This is our leadership consultancy and what we do is solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for that. If you wanna get some of that training online, check out EF Online. 
You don't need someone from Echelon Front to show up at your business to give you the instruction. You can get it from EF Online, online training, interactive online training. Then we have the muster. The next muster is in Sydney, Australia, which is happening now. This is probably already done. So look at extremeownership.com for details of the forthcoming musters in 2020. And then we have EF Overwatch and EF Legion. This is where we are taking folks from the military and placing them into civilian companies that need leadership. And if you want to continue to hear from us, then you can interact with us on the interwebs. Dick Thompson is on Twitter, by the way. He is at HPS underscore CEO. And he also has a website, HPSYS.com. That's High Performance Systems. That's his company. So if you want to check out or you want to interact with Dick Thompson, incredible human being, check him out. And then also, we are on Twitter as well. We are on Instagram. And we are on ye old Faisenbark. Echo is at Echo Charles. And I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Dr. Henry Dick Thompson for sharing his wisdom on this program today. And more important, thanks to Colonel Thompson for his service and sacrifice to protect freedom and democracy around the world for his whole career. And thanks to the rest of our military men and women that are out there today doing the same for us now. And to all the police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and border patrol, secret service and all first responders, thank you for protecting us here on the home front and to everyone else out there. We all want to do better. Everybody wants to be better. Everyone talks about becoming better. But I'll tell you right now, it doesn't just happen. In fact, it will not happen on its own. It will not happen on its own. You have to make it happen. You have to lead yourself. You have to make yourself better by attacking every day in spite of whatever challenges you face every day. Go out there and get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.